Ladies, gentlemen, ghouls, ETs, gremlins, mogwai, groovers, goonies, time travellers, sasquatches, dinos, and tiny flying robots. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we look back over the films of Amblin' Entertainment. The production company founded by Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy back in 1981. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian. And I'm the other half of your host, Josh Glenn. And you join us today for a very special episode, Mm -hmm. as we have reached the end of the 1980s. Big moment. (laughs) It is. I want to say to the listener, you had the cheekiest look in your eye when you were doing that introduction (laughs) just then. (laughs) I'm sure they can hear it. (laughs) (laughs) They can hear the cheeky little glint. Um, But before we gun it to 88 miles per hour and check out the 1990s, We're going to take a little look back over the movies that have made up that Amblin 80s offerings. How would you like some stats, Joshua Glenn? I I have have a little... Andy, my birthday was weeks ago. (laughs) Well, buddy, I've kept the bow round this one. and um, (laughs) It's very short, though, so don't worry. I'm I'm pretty short myself, so it's not good. So if you cast your minds back, the first film of the 1980s in the Amblin Entertainment canon was Continental Divide mm. in 1981, going right through to 89 with the last film, Steven Spielberg's Always, which was our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that time, that's 20 movies in total in between the years 1981 and 1989, roughly $1.8 billion in worldwide oh. box office, 11 Academy Awards, and 2,203 minutes of committed film. <laughs> and we've consumed all of those. So that's nearly 37 hours. <laughs> now, Joshua Glenn, how many minutes do you think we've done as a podcast covering those 20 oh, movies God. You know, and 2,203 minutes of movie time? More than that, because do you most think it's of more? our episodes are longer say, than do the you films want to, themselves. Do you want to have a, hazard a guess as to whether Re- it's... What, what's the total runtime of all the films put together again? 2,203 minutes. I reckon about 2,500. 2,500. Well, you'd actually be surprised for... We, we have recorded and published... Uh, Podcast content amounting to 1,988 oh. minutes. Well, so, uh, down. just over 33 hours. So it's pretty, it was pretty, <laughs> and close, as close I was in. adding it up, it was pretty neck and neck for <laughs> a long stretch. But there's a couple in there yeah. where, so like the longest film in this is Empire of the Sun. By a hundred is 154 minutes. Crikey. Um, the Colour Purple was 153 minutes. Yeah. And whilst we do have an 150 minute episode with our Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, most of the time, we kind of were either like 10 minutes, 20 minutes over some some of the films. And then some, some of the films we were way under. So yeah. it kind of, kind of narrowed itself out. But like pretty damn close to... Pretty, pretty close. <laughs> I guess, yeah. For every Back to the Future bulk episode, we have the occasional young yeah. Sherlock Holmes or always to level the playing field again. But still, it's a lot of talking, buddy. A lot of talking. And we hope you've enjoyed those uh, just over 33 hours of content and get ready for <laughs> hundreds more. <laughs> like we say, this is only only just stepping into the 90s now, which is the, the most productive Amblin were. I think, if I remember correctly, like, I think there's, this is the most volume of films in a given decade oh, so do you think? far. I think there's more in okay. the 90s than there were in the 80s. Um, 
Someone fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure it feels like there's more than 20 films in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, 20, we've had 20 films so far in the 80s. That's 20 out of a grand total of 92 films in the whole Amblin stable to date. So we're really? going to be doing this for a long time. Oh, Christ, because I was looking back over it today, like, got, uh, mm-hmm. in prep for this and having, like, looking at it, like, I guess kind of because I was focusing on the pocket of the 80s. And I was like, yeah. we've made some good, we've made a good <laughs> stab in this uh, Amblin canon here. But when you when you put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a ways to go, eh? For listeners, as, as they will already know, this is a special episode dedicated to looking back over the previous decade and mm-hmm. all the films therein. And we've created little categories uh, to sort of distinguish our favourite components of various films. Mm-hmm. Did you find compiling your answers for your categories, your winners... Um, were you able to recall details from films like Fandango and Continental Divide, or did you did you struggle to think of the specifics and the particulars from those? I films? did struggle to think of specifics. <laughs> I, uh, it was largely broadly going like that guy and that thing who looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was more. I remember vibe and feeling. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. more than I do particular details. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that be- comes to bear. But um, it, this was a lot of fun. Yeah putting this together um we hope you enjoy it too but um it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because we've had fun certainly an indulgence and let's see how tolerable an indulgence it is for our listeners uh so we like josh said we've got some pre-prepared categories that um we've uh we discussed what the categories were going to be ahead of time but we don't know what either of either of us have picked uh for each category we're going to find out now as we're running through them and we're going to culminate and our individual top fives and also a listener top five. So thank you once again to all those listeners who yeah. sent in your rankings. It's very much appreciated, and we we hope you're uh, we hope you're intrigued to know the results of that. But Waiting with bated breath to kick us off, Joshua Glenn, the inaugural our... Ramblies. <laughs> is that what we're calling? Them? I, just, I just thought of that now, and I wanted to say it before we no. commence. So, listeners, if you like it, tweet us. The Moonies. <laughs> Oh boy, uh, right. What is our very first uh, rambling review of the 80s category? Well, we thought we'd, we'd kick things off on a, on a positive note. I mean, this is largely a positive uh, episode. We want to look at the best of the best of the best. Favourite, favourite, favourites. So we're going to kick things off with the best surprise of the 80s so far. So, Andy, surprise! What have you given as your best surprise? Well, aside from the fact that we're still going and people are actually listening to <laughs> us. <laughs> I did struggle with this one, I'll be honest. And I honestly think my best surprise was um, kind of coming back to, and it's because this slightly touches on another topic coming up, but I'll get to that one, but it doesn't quite cross over. But it was more the potency of uh, The Land Before Time for me was the biggest surprise Mm because I was very much prepared for that to be one that I loved as a child and then come to and just going like, no, this is... This is flimsy. <laughs> but I was very surprised by the amount of goodwill and kind of the real potency mm-hmm. of the nostalgia of The Land Before Time when I went back and watched that. And yeah. then the, that discussion that we had with Mike and Nicole on it um, and just really enforced that kind of yeah. that feeling as well. That's <laughs> a very sweet conversation to be a part of. That was, that was a nice yeah, episode, even if I was sort of, I was like Charlie Bucket looking in through the window thinking, I want that. <laughs> Give me some. 
hey, save me a slice. <laughs> We haven't put a Simpsons the reference. Simpsons in a while, reference I, I know, like that was <laughs> that was another thing. Like listening back to a few of these episodes, particularly the early ones. Yeah. So for about a six-episode stretch, we get a Simpsons re- mm-hmm. <laughs> reference in every episode. <laughs> so, I think when you start to notice that you're doing certain things, you become a little bit conscious of them. Maybe and it's a bit harder to maintain. Maybe. So po- well, the potency of Land Before Time is your biggest surprise. Yes, I think That's so because nice. I, I I was fully expecting that to kind of I was mentally prepared for it be like this mm-hmm. will just be fine but yeah i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice what about you well mine is I, I similarly struggled with the best surprise i say not quite struggle but I, I i the well was a little dry on this one for me because i was familiar with most of them and the vast majority of the unfamiliar ones were pretty unspectacular one thing i will say that i found was was a very pleasant surprise yes was uh, the performance of John Belushi in the film Continental mm. Divide. Not a oh, film... what a lovely choice. It's not, it's not, <laughs> I mean, if listeners want to know more in depth how we felt about it, go back and listen to our second ever episode. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not a masterpiece by any stretch. No. But I, I do, and I think maybe it is because it was the first feature film that we covered on the podcast. It's a film that I do think back with perhaps undue fondness. <laughs> and it is, it's one, I think, of that crop, of sort of your Continental Divide, your Fandangos, your Money Pits and such... I think that's the one that I do look back on with the the, the sort of the most rose tinted glasses. Look at that! We're getting nostalgic over our own nostalgia <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but especially because I did a big Belushi, because I wasn't familiar with Belushi beforehand, so I did a big Belushi you deep did. dive in the build up to it. So I got a sense of his screen persona, uh, and I, I did feel uh, I felt, and especially having read Nick DeSemblin's really fun um, Wild and Crazy Guys book about the SNL mm-hmm. crew in the late seventies. Pretty much through to what the mid mid late nineties. Yeah, it was pretty much there. Uh, I did get a sense of of him as a guy, and seeing him attempt to sort of change track a little bit in this in this film, yeah. I think was well, that was quite a touching thing to witness. And more than anything else, how well he did, and especially watching um, Dreyfus try and do Spencer Tracy in Always, watching uh, and this is something I did mean to mention in the Always episode, but forgot. The fact See that John it. Belushi does better Spencer Tracy than Richard Dreyfuss does. This is kind of the service of this review episode as yeah. well. To be like, ah, this thing that I didn't say. <laughs> <up the crumbs. laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, he, did, he did it well. He did do he it did very well. Job. It's because he's not, like, he's not, like, to compare it to the Dreyfuss performance, mm-hmm. he's not, like, completely adhering himself. Yeah. Uh, like, sh- almost shackling himself to the, the mm-hmm. idea of what that sort of performance should be. He's just kind of, it's more Definitely. embedded in the actual writing in and of itself and Belushi's yeah. just, just kind of bringing his own easygoing charm to Definitely. something that's in that built in that script anyway yeah and he um, is charming isn't he he's he is a charming, charming guy in that film and it's so sad to think about if he was able to have kept the demons at bay if it was a hit if he had perhaps more support in his immediate circle if he could keep those demons at bay we could he would still be here and he would he could be a sort of a Tom Hanks figure mm. who lest we forget also had his starting comedy um but you know, so that was my best surprise was yeah. seeing the, the the potential what could have been John Belushi yeah. in in in, in That's a film. A real I do sweet think answer for that one. <laughs> Mr. Suchak, there's nothing personal in this. I'm sure that you're a fine newspaper man, but I do serious work here in private and in peace. I'm not a pop singer. I don't have a million records to sell. Publicity is trite and trivial. Reporters are parasites. They feed off the accomplishments of other people. I don't see newspapers much, but what I do see sickens me. Well, they only cost 20 cents. 
So that is our little our little fun introduction out of the way. Next, we go straight to a pretty bloody oh, big heavy one. hitting. Yeah, this category. is like when they come out with the best supporting actor. Oscar, <laughs> yeah, uh, it is the second it? in the evening, isn't it? Um, I and I am currently wearing my John Williams T-shirt. Uh, a, a little clue for you. Um, for our next category is a favorite score. Favorite. Um, Let's go, favorita. What, 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 what talk me through your thinking with with this one? Well, I'm, there's I'm, a, there's I'm a few gonna... obvious ones, yeah. isn't there? There's, yeah. bi- there's big themes in here. There's big musical cues. That that big have musical themes come down as like some of the most iconic film music of all time. Yeah. I'm going to set my stool up from the start. Uh, I, I think listeners of the show, friends in real life, and specifically you, Andrew, mm. know very well what my favorite film of all time is, and it's a film that we have covered on this very podcast. Uh, I'm not going to name names, otherwise the top five uh, at the end of the episode is going to be a giveaway. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure everyone knows what my number one film is. Um, I had to establish a, a kind of a self-imposed set of rules for this trivial indulgence that we're doing today. Um, because I didn't want said film to steamroll all the categories, as it very well could have. So I tried to limit, I, I, try, I tried my hardest to, as close as I could, pick as near enough to a different film for each answer. Um, didn't quite manage to do that. But still, <laughs> I tried to. You've got to follow your myself. heart, man. Yeah. You've got to follow your heart. <laughs> so, well, it's a good thing you said follow your heart because I did follow my heart for this answer. Yes. Uh, I thought about what score could I listen to in the abstract, isolated from the film it's part of, and could still get the hairs standing up and the tears flowing. And this is the score that underpins the film, that underpins the question that I asked to all of our guests. <laughs> and that is John Williams' score for E.T., the extraterrestrial. That, I think is because we, as we discussed with David in our episode, pretty much wall-to-wall music. And it mitigates the emo- it, it, it sort of manages the emotional um, crescendos and the peaks and the valleys so, 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 so well. And if you can have sort of jaunty, uh, fun, going on an adventure yeah. uh, kind of music. You can also have music that really pulls the heartstrings without being too cloying or manipulative, but really sort of works in tandem with what Spielberg's doing with the visuals. And the performances are doing, um, and of course, uh, it, 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 it is the film. It is a spoiler for later on, but it is a film that makes me cry pretty much more than any other <laughs> film in existence. And a huge part of that is down to John Williams' work. Yeah. And I think it's a flawless score, start mm-hmm. to finish. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous score. So yes, John Williams' E.T. score was my pick for this one. Delightful stuff. How about yourself? Um, this was probably the hardest category for me. You're a big, a, big score head, aren't you? I'm a big score uh, head. Is that what we call ourselves? Isn't it? I, I have no That's idea. Coining a lot of terms today. And like I say, that like there's so many like kind of some of the most famous and most celebrated film composers of all time yeah. are working in this period of Amblin. Like mm-hmm. John Williams on all the Spielberg efforts here. You've also got James Horner producing some of his best work. His like even like. I, his his work on uh, Batch is not included in American Tale in particular, and mm-hmm. also The Land Before Time are all incredible. And Jerry Goldsmith is producing some of his weirdest, <laughs> his, his weirdest yeah. stuff with Joe Dante with Gre- the Gremlin score and also the kind of like the creepy ET vibe of Poltergeist yeah, as well yeah. that he brings mm-hmm. to that. And like, and of course, like Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future score mm-hmm. is like one of the great adventure yeah uh fanfares out there and even something like and it's something like i feel again kind of going back and saying (laughs) going back over old episodes and trying to 
say 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 stuff that I missed out on the last time. Yeah. <laughs> I really wish I'd made a, <laughs> more of a thing about uh, Dave Grusin's score for the Goonies because yeah, we yeah. T- we talked a lot about how that film kind of like ends up kind of like this. What you're seeing is kind of like this very madcap and like kind of ends up yeah. getting a bit all over the place. But the one thing that keeps the tone consistent and keeps everything consistent is his score. And it is such an incredible, like, child adventure score. Yeah, yeah. Like, going from, like, just underlying the threats, like, building in the kind of, like, fake notes on the skeleton keyboard with impending threat Mm -hmm. of Fratelli's to Data's little... (laughs) 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 And then also just, like, the, like, the... So much fun in like the bum bum bum, <laughs> so much fun in that. But this is a long winded way of me saying that I did also end up just going for the same one that you did because John yeah. Williams' score for ET the Extraterrestrial is just the one of the most like kind of like perfect embodiments of exactly what yeah. a Spielberg and a and a and Williams feel like as a kind of symbiosis of mm-hmm. them as a pairing. It's everything that you kind of expect, or like, everything you expect of them as a teamwork, as a pair, as a, and as a team. But in a way that is also just so inventive and so full of life, and mm-hmm. just it's such an incredible uh, display of orchestration, particularly in that track that I think we also mentioned with David, yes, which is like yeah. the fifty-minute um, escape chase, saying goodbye. Um, piece of orchestration that is literally just the whole last 15 minutes of the film it's just pure yeah. orchestra just having going out going whole hog yeah. on yeah. this on this moment of like pure of when the film itself becomes the purest like expression yeah. of yeah. Uh, escapist fantasy and also has these like heart rendering yeah. um, emotional uh, the emotional crux of the whole thing is the saying goodbye and that's the, this whole thing has been building yeah. up to is a chance to say goodbye. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, E.T. by John Williams is the yeah. best score of the Amblin 80s crop. It's big and obvious, but there are some things that are just undeniable. Yeah. Like, <laughs> to, to what you were saying, the whole, that final 50 minutes could be wordless and you mm-hmm. would still get as much. I mean, it, it largely, it, say for the occasional monosyllabic back and forth between Elliot and E.T., it largely is wordless. The music yeah. is the like a character in the film. <laughs> the music is really a character. Where's Nicolas Cage come from? I don't know. Who's probably never said that. The music's a cow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pleased. I am pleased. I, I did yeah. wonder because you are of the two of us. You're, I think, the, 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 without a doubt, the biggest scorehead. I was very curious as to where you'd land, but I. I I it was been... hard. I was listening yeah. to a lot of them today, but in my head, I was like, "Oh, I will just go for ET because it's just yeah. it's my second favorite John Williams score." Um, to reveal my first would give away the '90s review in about <laughs> ten years' time. Uh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. The penny but drops. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an exceptional, exceptional piece yeah. of work. <laughs>
and staying in the Sonic realm mm. for our next category. Then uh, this is one. I, this is one. This was an interesting. This one. was a very interesting <laughs> one. This is one I backed, and this is probably one that I backed and forth on the most of them all. Mm. Um, is favorite use of a song. Now I took this to mean like a popular song, a song that was yes. already in the cultural consciousness. I'm not sure if if you. Well, I I kind of I also had that I'm an R mm. um, because of course as we have discussed in previous episodes, there are songs that have been written for. Mm-hmm. A number of Amblin films. Good enough. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> oh boy! It, <laughs> once again, if you have not checked out the two-part music video for Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper's "The Goonies," are good enough. Please do so because and <laughs> make sure you're with someone when you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, what but, was your mm. pick, Andrew, for favorite use of well, like, song? I kind of, I kind of, I was umming and ahhing in my head mm-hmm. over whether to go for like Huey Lewis and the News. I decided not to. Um, Spoiler, because... as did I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then I, there were parts of me in my head that were kind of thinking over certain things, like mm-hmm. I think you made the point in the Inner Space episode, like that being one of the first like exposures to Sam Cooke. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. And you should always uh, pay pay respect where it's due to to wherever you get an introduction to Sam Cooke. Um, but the thing I've gone for, and it's not necessarily an individual song, it's more the, the actual collection as a compilation. Ooh. I've gone for Fandango. Oh, <laughs> Give it some props to one of the lower tier yeah. boys there. It's like, o- overall, like, it's a really, like, it's a great kind of mm-hmm. c- compilation of, the, so the film's set in, like, the late 60s, turning into the 70s as, like, these young men are dealing with the decision like, to go and uh, conscript their to Vietnam or to go and run away from said decision. But, um, and so as I'm sure that kind of period setting gives you the indication that it's going to have a good soundtrack and it, it, it has some great tracks in it from like kind of when they kick off their road trip, it's set to it's Saturday nights and night for fighting by Elton John, which is great yeah. chat. Probably <laughs> my favorite Elton John song. Um, but you've also got like it's too too late by Carol King in there. You've got "Can't Find My Way Home" by Blind Faith, kind of oh, playing it out, which is a really really great song. Um, you've got Classics Four's version of "Spooky," which I fucking love. Oh, <laughs> and you also got um, and I, this is where the film kind of gets close to having a score, but it doesn't have a score. It has the work of uh, Pat Metheny as who mm-hmm. was a kind of jazz. Uh, guitarist but also did a lot of work with synth and kind of folk sounds as well and that has this weird blend Mm -hmm. that kind of does suit the film quite nicely and it's something that I've listened to quite a bit since we saw that film and have come back to that playlist in particular Uh, because whilst it might have the kind of conventional ones that you'd think of in that sort of narrative like Steppenwolf Mm -hmm. Born to be Wild is in there but like having these kind of uh, blind faith and Pat Metheny stuff in there and them being the ones that are kind of underscoring the more uh, significant moments in the film were really made me go like, you know what, Fandango. I'm going to go Fandango with this one.
this plays back into the question that I asked earlier on is that recording specifics from these films, mm. I completely forgot on all of that stuff. To be mm. honest, it's good that you were able to cling up. Did you find that was that always in your head, or was that what you figured? Did you um, rediscover that looking back through your notes? No, it was. There was a moment where I was kind of like thinking back over the, like, because I had it in my head to think of an individual song. Yeah. But then as I was kind of thinking back in my head and kind of like having a step back and go, well, what have you been listening to because of mm-hmm. like a film that we've looked at? And um, the, like the, I can't remember, I'm sorry, Spotify user who put the playlist together. I can't remember your name right now, <laughs> but um, there is a Spotify playlist that's been put together of the songs that are in Fandango, and I've been listening wow. to that um, on and off since we, since we published that episode in January. Is that when it I was? I think it was January. <laughs> January, February. Yeah, because that was 85. That was, one that, was that the first 85 film? I think it was, it was 80, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, because yeah. that was the the, the, bum, the banner year yeah, for Ramblin' as well. Wow. wow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was more just me taking a moment to think like no come on come on don't go for the (laughs) what's the one that's actually felt quite significant Mm -hmm. to you as a course of doing this interesting journey oh yeah i like that fitting fitting pick thank you for that thought process what about what about you, Josh? Well, I similarly my my knee jerk instinct was the power of love by Hugh Lewis mm-hmm. in the news for for obvious reasons. That was a it's, it's one I listened to on, on a pretty much daily basis. And we sang it at karaoke we at sang, our friend Alex <laughs> Payne's wedding. <laughs> Maybe a future guest. I don't, know. I don't know if she's still listening at this point. To be honest with you, please message Alex if you are. <laughs> This will be the tell. <laughs> I was um, a big, uh, big. I, mean, I, I am a big Back to the Future boy. When I was eighteen uh, and I was at school, I would always dress as Martin McFly for fans of dress um, mm-hmm. endeavors. If ever I drove friends to the cinema or wherever in the in my mum's mom, car, mm-hmm. I'd put on the, the Back to the Future soundtrack and I'd play Power of Love and Repeat. So that is a huge song. I think it works amazingly in the film. It also um, uh, is a huge one for my life. It's like sort of on the soundtrack to my life. But then I, I thought, as per my previous category, I have to rule that back to the future. I, can't, I cannot have that be the answer for every category because it could easily be. So then uh, I thought, okay, well, obviously, as Andy pointed out, it's going to be Cupid in Inner Space because that's the first I ever heard Sam Cooke. I used to <laughs> I used to sometimes perform renditions of that song for my parents when I was a kid because, as I mentioned on the episode, I was a huge shrinking film boy. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Inner Space were two massive films in my childhood. It still is. <laughs> I it's, it's a category that's not grown, fittingly, as much as I would like. Um, and, and I think Cupid, the way, I mean, even beyond introducing me to perhaps the greatest vocalist of all time, mm. Sam Cooke, um, I think the way it's deployed in the film is really uh, effective. It's not a film that has much of a sentimental streak because Dante rarely deals in naked sentiment, I, don't, mm-hmm. I, I would argue. But I think what what emotional resonance there is or what emotional connection there is is down to the use of I mean twisting as well is a really good really fun yeah, scene twisting yeah. the night away but getting Cupid in particular that, that was a song that has really wedged itself under my skin since I was a kid but Cupid was going well, to be that's not the answer no, Cupid was going I'm, I'm, this is I'm, I'm really, really oh it's the ramble <laughs> this is an indulgent episode Andrew um, so it, it was it was going to be Cupid but then I was in the shower earlier on and I was singing a song to myself and then I suddenly slapped my forehead and had a vision of this um, I realised that 
I, I cannot not pick Earth Angel from yeah, Back to the Future. Yeah, that, that's where I thought. It yeah. absolutely has to be Earth it's Angel really, from Back I, to the Future. As soon as we said this category, yeah. I was like, he's going to pick Earth Angel. <laughs> much, much as I did not want to have Back to the Future um, be the winner for everything, I just I couldn't deny that I've kind of spoiled what is going to be my biggest cry moment. Um, but the, the, the part, I mean, the, the whole we, we spoke about again. I, not to sort of use this as a, as a, as a trailer for our preceding series we spoke a lot in the episode on back to the future with harley about how the final 45 minutes half an hour is pretty much just sort of capping off climax after climax and everything pretty much from george punching biff all the way to marty getting back to 1985 is just one glorious home run after the other yeah and that whole bit emotionally peaks for me in the part where uh, george pushes away that that horrible red-haired bully who is stealing a dance with Lorraine, grabs her and Scram kisses her. Fly. And then the strings, Sylvester's strings are weaved into the rendition by Marvin, the starlighters of Earth Angel. The score swells and Marty, he sits up, then he stands up and one, two, three, in tandem with the music, the, his siblings um, mm-hmm. fade back into the photo. And it's just, it's such a, it, 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 it might even be my pick for all time favourite use of a song in a film. It's so effective and it makes me, cry not through sadness but just when you see a film and think this is working so fucking well this is what movies can be (laughs) by god it's done it (laughs) and and, and, and it's a it's a a lovely rendition i think that's probably my favorite rendition of that song I think it might be the only music. rendition of that song that I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of bounced around as a sort of, I guess, would that be an R&B? Maybe pre-R&B, I don't really know. Sort of classic mm. pop music genres very well. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it, again, it, 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 it has to be that. It's, a gorgeous it's, it's undeniable. It's a, a gorgeous bit of the film. But um, it was so, so nearly Cupid, but it, it had to be Earth Angel. It absolutely had to. <laughs> I'm not in the least bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after, um, I think after we recorded the episode, the next day when I was at work, on my lunch break, I just opened up YouTube and found that clip and I was just sitting there crying, <laughs> crying to myself oh. I that bit. Uh, so from <sighs> Sonic Sounds, we now move to a category that is all about the images on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> With our next category being favorite looking movie, which is the film that we thought was the best looking out the bunch. Um, again, another one I found quite hard. <laughs> but the, 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 because, well, the, some of the best popular directors of the eighties have made films for Amblin during mm. that period. So you, you do, I mean, and, and they're working with like the creme de la creme of DC DOPs as well. So it is, yeah. it was hard to whittle down the ones that we go for. With this one, twenty-three um, four process. Well, the thought process would, I suppose, again, you have the obvious big hitters. You have like the, the visual economy of Spielberg in ET. You have the um, sort of really unshowy efficiency 
in terms of conveying character and exposition of uh, you know of, of, of Back to the Future, mm-hmm. you have this. You have the grandiosity of something like Empire of the Sun. You have that weird little nexus of Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg in Poltergeist. You have the wistful Sunday afternoon matinee um, look of the Goonies. You have some gorgeous animations by Bluth and Co. for An American Tale and Land Before Time. I mean, even, even The Colour Purple, which is a film that I wasn't crazy about, still has a good look. Even yeah. young Sherlock Holmes has a nice little glow to it. Um, but what it all came down to, ultimately, I think, what is the most visually impressive film, the film that I look at and think, oh, this, and this is a miracle that this thing exists and looks like it does. Because watching it today, um, 33 years on from when it was first released in cinemas, I still think... And, and also having read extensively into how it was produced and how it was composited, I still look at it and think, how on earth did they manage, how did they do this in a way that is so convincing uh, and so enduringly just glorious to look at? So ultimately, I have gone for the work, the collaboration between DOP Dean Cundy and animation director Richard Williams in Robert Zemeckis' Who Framed Roger mm. Rabbit. You have the... the, the, the like flawless one of the all-time openings which is williams uh roger rabbit cartoon yeah with um the baby what's the baby baby herman baby herman don't disrespect baby herman. that moment when it, when it switches from the the diegetic short cartoon film to the cartoon characters walking around on the set integrating with real people it's a it's a feat that it's i mad. just i've never i don't think it's been you know not to retread ground but i just it hasn't been improved upon in the years since and uh, it's a yeah it's a, an, a phenomenal achievement mm-hmm. and it just makes me giddy to think that that was achieved with such <laughs> and more, more than more than the fact that it's a compositing it is the fluidity of Kundi's camera within that world yeah and the animation being welded to that with such I really think that it's it, you can't you, you can't really see the seams. I really don't think the seams show, and it, and and even if maybe sometimes they do risk being shown, you're so convinced that what you're seeing is a cohesive world that you are just you too enraptured to yeah. be taken out of it by any any potential seams. So yeah, for me, Roger Rabbit has to has to take the crown for this one. It's it's very easy to. Um underestimate how good a cinematographer Dean Cundy is oh, because yeah. of how much you accept the a general kind of look of a particularly a Hollywood movie is kind of what Dean Cundy set down in the likes yeah, of yeah. Back to the Future and Roger Rabbit and he also did The Thing if I yeah if well I he was a car- he did Halloween he as well he's a few carpenter joints yeah and he would go on to work with Spielberg on uh, I believe Jurassic, he's on Jurassic Park. We'll, we'll be talking um, about him a lot in the 90s. Yeah. But he, yeah, he is just someone who's like, he really lays down what those sort of blockbusters, mm-hmm. what an Amblin blockbuster looks like. Yeah. So, and but in a way that isn't like particularly that like showy or like, no, goes you couldn't kind isolate of like, an image and say like, like that's Deakins, that's Kaminsky, that's Lubetsky. You couldn't do that with a Kundi shot, I don't think, but no, it's but the vocabulary, it's, still, it's it? someone who really understands how color works in the space yeah. and understands yeah. how movement can say a lot more than words sometimes. Yeah. And he's uh, someone who's like, I'm glad you went for a Kundi. Yeah. Because I haven't gone for a Kundi. <laughs> <laughs> you could pick a number of Kundis from this You could pick a number of Kundis. But um, I kind of, I went for it on, on a similar <laughs> way to kind of how you, you went for, you've kind of looked at generally this crop and kind of like 
and Kundi's quite a big component of mm-hmm. the narrative and overall look of Amblin. Yeah. Um, I've gone for the guy who I think is probably slightly more significant in that look. Maybe not, maybe significant is the right word, but the, the, the main contributor along with Kundi for that kind yeah. of look. And that is uh, Alan Davio and who shot E.T., Color Purple, and uh, Empire of the yeah. Sun. Yeah. And, and Harry and Henderson. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten he'd done Harry and Henderson. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, the film I chose to go through, go for out of those, particularly those three, yeah. is E.T. Just because yeah. it's uh, it's the way the perspective is so ingrained in yeah. in the cinematog- cinematography. And also just how kind of it, it exhibits Davio's particular... Um, contribution to Spielberg's identity as a filmmaker of this kind of yeah um, almost pastel sort of lighting where everything's kind of nothing's super vibrant or super like um, obnoxious in its kind of coloring every but there there are there is a lot of color mm-hmm. but it's done so in, in like a very like say pas like pastoral kind of painterly yeah. Yeah. way where it has that. The best way I can describe it is a slight, like, fuzziness uh, that glow. Yeah, brings the inherent warmth to it. And that is very much the case for all the films that he shot over this decade. Yeah. Uh, And once again, R.I.P. Alan Davio, absolutely incredible cinematographer. I wish we got to see more of further down the line in the 90s of this calendar, because I don't think we have another Davio shot movie coming up at all, because I think he took a bit of a backpedal after the 80s correct me if i'm wrong i see you're doing a little google <laughs> <laughs> but i'm pretty sure he doesn't shoot another movie for amblin uh which is a shame because like like i say he's so so much a part at least for me of what it is that makes up a lot of the arresting images across the movies that we've gone through is, it, is that a shake of the head and the no that he doesn't yeah. shoot another uh, Amblin movie. He does not, but do you know what his final credit is? I don't actually. What was You're it? not going to believe what it is. Hit me. It's Van Helsing. I knew! I knew it was Van Helsing. <laughs> I knew it. I, I, I had that in my head. What a boy! I knew I loved Van Helsing for a reason. <laughs> I'm surprised you aren't pushing for a Van Helsing bonus after the same Honestly, way I think this a, might be the first time we've West. mentioned Van Helsing. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> enough, maybe we can leave Wild Wild West in the 80s, and when it comes to the 90s, Van Helsing I'll can just be keep the pushing hill. Van Helsing. You can die on a um, that's a go- but, that's yes. a really nice uh, eulogy almost to a to a, a great talent. Yeah, and but, like particularly just like he's someone that had like this little journey that we've gone on mm. so far, going from right from that Amblin short film in the sixties that he shot with Spielberg. Yeah, and just but uh, like the work on ET that he does kind of speaks for itself. But like even like the Color Purple and Empire, the Sun, yeah, the, like, yeah, the incredible like again sense of perspective use of color and particularly yeah. in the color purple the use of color yeah. is phenomenal yeah. phenomenal and the means of just kind of letting often letting in particularly in that film letting actors kind of fill the frame as well yeah. and allow them to the room to allow their performances to breathe the emotion into it and the kind of gentle slow nature that he kind of brings you into the stories as well. Yeah. When paired with Spielberg, he's like, yeah, I, 
I love Davier. <laughs> <laughs> and he shot Van Helsing. And he <laughs> shot Van Helsing. I think two, two excellent choices. And yeah, there's not much that either of us could have picked in this decade, I think, that would have been, aside from some of the obvious lower tier ones that we'll discuss later on, uh, no doubt. Um, yeah, m- more than half of what we've seen could have been a pick. Because mm-hmm. the Amblin look is... is Ubiquitous and sought after by yeah. so many kids for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after, after our conversations. <laughs> really, really. Uh, so, sticking in the visual plane, uh, mm. the next award is a special award. This is the <laughs> this is the Wax Flatter Award for favorite visual effects shot. Wax Flatter, of course, as everyone will know, being the professor from everyone's favorite Sherlock Holmes. Everyone's favourite young Sherlock Holmes film. Young Sherlock Holmes. And the Pyramid of Fear! (laughs) Mr. The Late Great Wax Flatter. Um, So, yeah, Andrew, what are you thinking? Where was your head at for this? Um, Because, like, naming the award (laughs) after a character. Shall we explain why we. Yeah, yeah. so, like. Casting minds back to young Sherlock Holmes, there's a shot in that film which features a stained knight uh, jumping out of a, a a knight in a stained glass window jumping yeah. out as an animated fig- figure in this uh, drug-fueled hallucination um, and it is one of the first kind of CG created and animated mm. um, and hand animated uh, creations on screen made by a lot of the people that would go on to be sold off from ILM to form, then go on and form Pixar so it's quite like for a film that doesn't have a huge amount of cultural following, this one moment is yeah. a very pivotal moment in the kind of development of the VFX that we know today. Yeah. So hence the naming of the uh, <laughs> the award <laughs> going to, towards that film. And there was a part of me that would just go, I should probably give it to <coughs> The Stained Knights because it is a very good effect mm. and it still looks pretty damn good. It looks pretty but, damn good. Um, then I, I just kind of stopped them thought about it and then particularly the, the idea that we were talking about what is the what is vfx here because like mm-hmm. particularly in this period of time this is a time where cg is very much in its infancy and there's only a couple of examples within these films where they are using cg uh, for the most part the visual effects are still miniatures and um animatronics and costumes and what have you mm-hmm. and the, again uh, to point to your cinematography of choice, um, there's still incredible work on the animation front of like Hugh Frame, Roger Rabbit. Yeah. And the process in which they built that is still kind of mind-boggling in a yeah. way that I think is still just pure magic. Um, and I was kind of maybe going off on this in my head going like, this is the last time that we're going to have to properly... Yes, in the 90s, there will still be like miniatures and animatronics to kind of look at and yeah. appreciate but this is going to be the last time, one of the like truly last like great moments of um, blockbuster cinema where they, they are just kind of using miniatures and what have you. Uh, so it became a tussle between two films for me. Okay. And it's, uh, uh, one of them was the great um, kind of miniaturized look of inner space and the way the capsule is moving around the human body and how gooey and fluid it all looks. And I think everything that's done in that film on a VFX level oh, is just that's sublime. next level and it, it yeah. is also completely mad. Um, <laughs> but what I've gone for may surprise. 
I am very absolutely. I'm literally on the edge of my seat, um, as you can see, because we're in the same room again. <laughs> it, it, I've gone for the thing that um, managed to build me a connection to the film and was something that made me enjoy the film more for than the sum of its parts because of how good the particular effect and animatronic and costume and visual makeup of this central character. <laughs> it can't be what I think it can't be what I think it's gonna be. And I've gone for Harry and Anderson's <laughs> Somewhere in London Petros is crying. <laughs> I just think Harry himself is an incredible creation of puppetry, animatronics, and physical performance from the late, great Kevin Peter Hall. He's also and a deadbeat dad. He's also a deadbeat dad. But that does not take away from the fact that he is a visual effect that we just don't really see a lot of anymore. And I wanted in some way to tip my hat to Harry and the Hendersons in this rundown. And I, this was the one where I felt the most comfortable doing it. <laughs> Something? Oh, yes, he's so smart to have... George has taught him how to sit. To sit? Well, brother. I think I I think I've made my I admire your bravery there. there. (laughs) Very, 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 a very brave choice. Um so for, for for my answer for this. I've kind of cheated with the, with, the, with the previous category and this category. I've kind of blurred a few different ones. So for best looking film, I did kind of cheat by picking Roger Rabbit because I couldn't isolate a, a single shot or moment from that film that I thought was particularly better than the rest because the whole thing is so uniformly yeah. great. So that's why I picked that for the previous one with a slight nod to this category here. Um, the one that I did actually go for um, it, it, well, I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so with, with visual effects, I think the sort of two intentions are either to, to wow with with the spectacle of something, which is something we'll get to particularly in 1993 for, mm. for one very big, roaring reason. And the other one is to convince you of a particular reality, like a, as with Roger Rabbit, it's to convince you of the reality that you're seeing on screen and to mm-hmm. almost not draw attention to itself, just sort of hide the seams a little bit. And ultimately, I I mean, I thought of, the, I mean, again, you could throw a dart and, uh, at the ambling crop of the 80s and you could pick from any number of uh, impressive effect shots. The one that I landed on was, uh, it's a combination of uh, a technical achievement, but also the welding of, of two performances by who I think might be one of our MVPs of the whole decade, who <laughs> we'll speak about more later on. Um, but the, the shot, the particular shot that I went for was um, old Biff talking to young Biff <laughs> yes, in the garage. Yes, it's a very good shot. Uh, in Back to the Future Part 2. I guess and... I didn't go for a particular shot, did I? No, well, no, no, no. You don't have to. Don't have to. I mean, Any shot of Harry. With Harry. <laughs> and what it was with this is, I think... He's it, getting it, his hair cut. <laughs> it's manifold. Like, it, it is the use... Um, Zemeckis, as we mentioned uh, in, the, in, the, in, the previous, in the previous category, he went, his, he's an ambitious guy who mm. does not want to settle for a still camera with compositing happening on the screen. He wants his fluid camera movement uh, as well as combining two performances by the same actor. So we mentioned previously that the Vista Glide technology was really harnessed for this um, for, for this for this this film Back to the Future Part Two. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a point when I was watching the movie for the podcast, and I was so 
absorbed by this scene, by this part in the film, you know where it's going, you know what its intentions are, and, and you're on, on board for the ride. But in this particular scene, I was so captivated by the interaction of these two permutations of the same goddamn guy that I forgot it was, for a moment, I forgot it was forget. the same actor. You really do forget. And that's both a testament to the work of, I couldn't pinpoint who I should shout out for this. I, the VFX art director is John Bell, the VFX supervisor with Ken Ralston. So those guys in the combination teams beneath the team, them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's a combination of their work and also the work of Tom F. Wilson. Yeah. It just convinces you of a reality that is impossible to exist. Mm-hmm. So, for all of the uh, the awesome spectacle, for all the inc- incredible miniature work, model work, um, CGI, uh, stain night, stain nights. <laughs> I just think th- and all th- your this, Sasquatches. This was the one. All the Sasquatches. <laughs> all the evasive father <laughs> Sasquatches. Uh, this is yeah. This this is one that is just. Uh, it's so good that it kind of puts mm. itself out of a job. It makes you forget that what you're seeing is an incredible and particularly technical for a, achievement. Particularly for a film that also features hoverboards and flying cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and holographic Jaws 19. Yeah. It is just... I, 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 I sort of did the double take and... The, Give me when the hell I, I my coral, it, man. Alright then, leave! I'm going to a damn book with you! Uh, it's incredible. So yeah, yeah, for me, the Wax Fusser Award for favourite effects shot goes to um, John Bell and Ken Ralston's team's on Back to the Future Part mm. 2. Alright, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And on reflection, mine goes to that shot in Harry and Henderson's <laughs> where Harry sees a turkey going in a vat of boiling water then looks over to see some people getting into a hot tub of also equally boiling... <laughs> bubbling water and the shock <laughs> hopefully not equally boiling Jesus as he's worrying that humans are boiling themselves in a hot tub <laughs> well done <laughs> Rick Baker <laughs> uh, Oscar winning I would also say of those ah. um, what was it 11 Oscar? yes of those 11 Oscars that I mentioned earlier one of those is Harry Emma Henderson's for best Listen, man, I would never deny Rick Baker any acknowledgement. No, when it comes to man. the review of the 90s, I'm pretty sure that my answer mm. to this question is going to be Rick <laughs> Baker as well. Uh, so from favourite uh, visual components, we come to favourite words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for our next category is favourite quote. Mm. Um, there are many, many iconic catchphrases and lines that have mm-hmm. come from this crop of movies. I mean, we've already... Name dropped a few of like E.T., Back to the Future, and uh, Poltergeist, even with like the they're here, mm-hmm. so, like little bits like that that have really permeated the kind of cultural yeah. consciousness in like really significant ways. Um, so my instinct is that you've gone for a Back to the Future quote here. I but... thought. <laughs> um... I have one as my honourable mention. One of my runner-ups is is, is very much Back to the Future. Um... It was, again, it was... The, uh, Back to the Future could so easily have walked this whole thing, but I tried to tamper that down and, and look elsewhere. So I, lo- I looked through my notes for a bunch of the movies and saw what quotes I'd written down from previous viewings and stuff. And the one I've gone for, I, I tried to think of a quote that is, I suppose, the most... Well, with, with so okay, so you have the the big the banner ones that sort of define the films that they're from. They're really the famous ones that are on posters in dorm rooms and stuff. Yeah, the one that I actually went for in the end was a, a quote that when I read it, I giggle. 
when I, I read it, I can hear the, the I can hear the monotone drawl that it's read out in, and when I read it, I can sort of I get the sense of everything that the filmmaker is going for with their satire in this movie. So um, the <laughs> the one that I went for was fantastic ideas for a fantastic world. I make the illogical logical. Spoken by <laughs> Randall Peltzer in Gremlins, and he's he is a dude. I I love uh, that performance in this yes. movie, and we're going to be talking about it in a category coming up as well. <laughs> but I think that that film is is such an effective, vicious satire of the idea of American exceptionalism. And again, we had a great conversation with uh, with Daisy in our Gremlins episode many many moons ago. That must have been last year now. That was January. That was January. So yeah. just 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 post Christmas. Uh, so go back and give that a little listen. Um, but it's such a, an acute summation of the American idiocy masking, masquerading as American exceptionalism. <laughs> the that Joe Dante. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a really, it's a great witticism in and of itself. It's a delivery of Peltzer. And that, I think that quote sums up what Gremlins is going for more than anything else. I love that. What I do want to say that I was very, very, very close to picking... You've got a great future in front of you in retail food marketing, and I just hate to see you throw it all away by going psycho on us <laughs> in a space. Uh, spoken by Mr. Wormwood. Again, he's going to return later on. And uh, the back of the future quote that I was close to picking was, no wonder your president is an actor. He has to look good on TV. <laughs> so I tried to eschew the big blockbuster yeah. lines and go for lines that are more character-based or... Um, all that kind of sum up what the film's I've going gone for. on a similar route. In the end, yeah, <laughs> it was the Gremlins quote. What, what was your... Quote. Because you, you messaged me uh, I meant today. earlier on today <laughs> saying, can we include a favourite quote category, please? So what was it? Something must have Is sparked that. Is that how I sound to you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listen back to yourself. I do. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what, what, what spurred on your... Uh, desire for this category <laughs> it was literally because I, I was just sat there kind of going like what are some of the because we as I'm sure regular listeners will be listeners will be aware of uh, we do a lot of impressions on this show mm-hmm. uh, of things that really like take our fancy um, or just like lines that are really stuck in our head and there's one thing that like has kind of kept coming up that I've started to use it, it's more the final exp- like one particular word within this quote that I keep using a lot since having seen this film and discuss the film. Yeah. And um, it's a, it's another showing for a film that I don't think you'd, uh, you were fully going to expect from me, but I'll let Kevin Costner take it. <laughs> That's one small step for a groomer, boys! One giant leap for Weenie Kai! You were so horny for Fandango, man. I can't tell you how many times I've just thrown that line out when I've been drunk. I know, because I've been with you for a lot of them. Can't believe that's what spurred on this. Spoken by the immortal Kevin Costner as Gardner (laughs) Barnes in Kevin Reynolds, 1985, Fandango. It's just like, it's such a beautifully silly quote (laughs) and sums up a lot of that joy for that film. (laughs) For a film that like is guilty of being quite pedestrian at times, that is a quote and in a moment and lifted from the much more fun short short student film that Kevin Reynolds made. Um, that formed the basis of Fandango. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just love it. I keep thinking about that quote all the time. I, I, again, it was a moment where I sat down with myself and thought, what are the things that have really like stuck with me? Yeah. 
of through like going through these movies so far and that is one of the quotes that like I yeah. often think about. <laughs> <laughs> well we've spoken about Fandango so much more than I thought we would. Can I ask you a straight question and please yeah. give me a simple answer? Yeah. Is there gonna be any more Fandango in this episode? I can say no. <laughs> <laughs> question mark? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's a no. It's a no. That I'm fandangoed out. <laughs> fandangoed out. Um, so from films that we hadn't really been aware of culturally uh, until doing this podcast, two films that may have been big parts of our childhood, the next category is Most Improved from Childhood, mm. which is one that I, I think I suggested and I was quite keen to do this, but then sitting down to look at it... It's a hard one. It is surprising because... One of the, the sort of the way I initially thought of when we first decided to do a review of the 80s, I wanted to look at the film that had um, gone down the most in our estimation from childhood. Mm. But that's still a bit too much dwelling on negativity. Um, this is a positive episode. We want to celebrate what we like as opposed to slagging off what we don't like. So we inverted that thought process to the film that's improved the most from us being children. So, how did you approach this question? Because, like, and the, the other element that I found quite difficult with this is, like, a lot of the ones that were, like, firm favourites as a kid mm-hmm. were ones that I had also come back to a lot mm-hmm. and have not really been out of the circulation. Yeah, you haven't really had chance to so, shift your Yeah, so, um, so like, your Back to the Futures, your E.T.s, your Who Framed Roger Rabbits and what have you, and the yeah. Goonies. These are all films that have been quite, like, fairly well... Uh, regarded and like yeah. have stayed in that rotation throughout most of the kind of entrenched in your yeah. <laughs> lexicon. They're who I am <laughs> the file is a fuse to the head <laughs> very good um, that's a quote that I think about that'd be my yeah. pick for best fibers are yeah. fused to the head I wish Matilda was handling it feels like it probably it should be I might start making the case That'll for be... that being a Patreon episode as that would well. be the next like Spin-off will be just <laughs> rambling-esque, an ambling-esque <laughs> podcast. <laughs> the Mummy as well. So yeah. many people think The Mummy so is many an people. ambling film. Yeah. I had so many, right, when we did that initial, like, reach yeah. out, people were like, I'll come on for The Mummy, and they're yeah. like, The Mummy's not ambling. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> it's a good idea, though. Mm. So, going back to that, um, I decided to kind of look it at one that, like, I remember watching from childhood, yeah. but didn't actually have it as a one quite heavy in rotation. And I'm watching it again. And it's one that wasn't necessarily one that watching it again for this made me think a lot more of it. It was the discussion that we ended up having Mm -hmm. about it that made me think a lot more of it. Largely thanks to the enthusiasm of our guest on it. Um, And I've gone for Batteries Not Included. Ah, Um, okay. Largely because it was a film like, when I watched it again, I was like, I remember so many elements of this, but not the whole. And um, kind of coming out of it and like kind of going like, that was really odd. Because <laughs> uh, it's like, weirdly, like it is this fantastical story of alien robots coming down to help this, uh, a lot of uh, um, people who are like at the risk of losing their homes. Yeah. Uh, all of which have their own sad, sad backstories and what have you that kind of make up why their situation is so desperate and they're in need of a miracle. Mm that come down and fix it and i just remember coming out of watching it going like that's so strange it feels so weird for rambling because it feels a lot more mature despite the fact that it's quite yeah. like a kid-friendly 
package on the surface yeah and then just talking to steph about it and like because she she is someone who yeah i think had had it more as like one of these more ingrained ones in her uh childhood and and growing up and something that like was more of a mainstay and just and also that like just the readings that she bought on it and just kind of like yeah. highlighting a bit to it more of it that was like yeah no yeah this is doing a lot more than <laughs> yeah. like like it, it looks on the surface it is a lot more of, of a mature fantasy than a lot of these amblin ones are despite kind of walking that line yeah of an amblin picture with its kind of alien visitors and what what have you and it's just one that like as like as we were going through that episode as i was editing it as i published it and like listened back to it little after the fact it was just one that was like yeah no that's a that was a good movie <laughs> and so by that nature i think it's the one that is kind of like one i remember watching as a child and coming back to it here yeah and just actually the kind of experience of putting it through the podcast ringer as it were yeah has yeah vastly improved it feeding so it that's, into the play machine exactly that's that's the track to, i took and that's the conclusion i ended that's up that's a very nice journey and and yeah that was a really fun conversation i really enjoyed that one and uh i wasn't quite as yeah ultimately moved as you I, I fully got behind steph's enthusiasm and her her plight on that episode yeah batteries not included starring hume cronin and jessica tandy yeah i really like that Banging the drum for it again and understand you, you're covering quite a wide range of, of some mm. of the lesser. <laughs> um, I was hoping to. I mean, we never want to dislike a a movie. Really, we're always hoping there's going to be some gem that we discover on the way in the um, in the underseen ones. But I mean, I'm looking at my letterbox ranking now, and unfortunately, it has gone the way of the heavy hitters are at the top and the lesser known ones are at the bottom. So they're unknown for a reason, really. For, in, certainly in my opinion from doing this podcast so the one that ultimately has um, improved the most childhood for me is one of the more entrenched beloved ones that I wasn't overly familiar with as a kid I'd seen it in passing on the floor in my grandparents house yeah. when we'd gone to visit them and you know, and it was one that I'd seen because it was kind of cool seeing Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse in the same shot and I thought wow this is rad um, obviously I'm talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, it's a film I've watched a couple times in recent years um, first out of completism because I, I couldn't you believe did. I hadn't fully seen it yeah you? I did I did and that was a, that was a goddamn tough uh, that was a goddamn tough um, punishment that I set for myself but I think I like, watching it as a kid what stuck in my head was the fact that you have these these cartoon characters occupy the same space and that's very, very cool and exciting. Watching it again now and particularly for the podcast and, and talking to Jack about it, I just appreciated, I mean, on the first level, you've got what an incredible technical achievement it is. On the second level, you've got what an incredible genre pastiche it is. Without, it never fully takes the piss. It emulates a genre and probably is one of the best examples of a film noir, I dare say. <laughs> and you've got that incredible performance by Bob Hoskins as kind of the glue that keeps it all together. But I think more than anything else, what I appreciate about Roger Rabbit that I, I would have had no ability to understand as a kid is just how unbelievable it is that it exists. Yeah. Not just on a technical level, but in terms of... Sort Copyright of the... level. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but not even just that, but the, the, the fact that Walt Disney Corporation would allow such a risky, weirdly sleazy, arch 
you know, um, well, incredibly stylistic piece of film. I know they ultimately took their branding <laughs> off. I realise that, but it, it is. It, it's not just. I mean, Too late in the day, we're like, oh shit, it's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had the conversation on the episode about IP overload that's defining a lot of Lego Movie and uh, Space Germany Legacy and Ready Player One. Come on, and slam. Ralph breaks the internet. Not just the Lego Movie's the best example of those, but they are all still defined by one yeah. corporation trying to just essentially do brand management. So Roger Rabbit, I just watching it again and again and again and again, I'm just bowled over by what a risk it is, or how risky it is for mm. what it is. Yeah. How much um, corporate capital is invested in this, in this, what is ultimately a product and how weirdly Phil cineliterate it is and how genuinely sleazy it is yeah. and how just, it's a, a glorious anomaly. And this is something that Zemeckis excelled in in the 80s was, was making these weird blockbusters on a huge scale pretty much better than anybody else in history, in, in Hollywood history. Um, so yeah, it's not a film that I ever dislike, but it's certainly a film whose significance I appreciate more you, as I've yeah, grown up. There were, you know. there were layers to it that yeah. you, like, can, it, I, and I get that. Because it's, it's mad that it like, exists. It it, I still can't get my head around the fact that it exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tools may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So moving on from uh, kind of like cozy, rosy mm-hmm. cheat, uh, uh, gentle, lovely surprises and improvement. We'll, we'll be quick on this one. Yeah. Because like we say, we don't, don't like to be negative. Much. Don't want to dwell too much. Um, Least favourite from going through the 80s. Uh, Joshua Glenn, what was your least favourite? Well, I'm pretty, 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 pretty happy to be able to report that it was not always a film that uh, don't like very much, much to the chagrin of some of our Twitter followers. <laughs> Josh, we have no souls. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would have to issue an apology for at Grumpy Duck on Twitter, who was rather upset at our approach to Sorry, the film man. always. Just didn't gel. Um, <laughs> but as Andy pointed out, it looks gorgeous, and for the level of craftsmanship, that cannot be deemed the worst. The one I think is the worst is, is kind of the most cynical, hackneyed, emotionally manipulative... Um, unconvincing mess of a movie that I mean <laughs> with its three letter title it's completely nondescript and has uh, rightly so had no footprint much as we love Jack Lemon, much as we love Ted Dancer much as we love Ethan Hawke the worst thing I think we've seen thus far is Dad, Dad. Uh, yeah and if listeners want to know why you can listen back to our episode on Dad or look at my letterbox review I don't want to dwell mm-hmm. too much on negativity but it fucking sucks <laughs> <laughs> And in that spirit, I went for Barry Lemmonson's Young Sherlock Holmes. That's your, that's your bottom, bottom, bottom. Boring, boring, boring. <laughs> dull, dull, dull. What about the stains last night? It's not a Barry Levinson movie, and uh, it like uh, from all the all the things <laughs> from Barry. Stained Glass Night's great, but like you know. But wax splatter. Dull, dull, dull. Boring, boring, boring. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Mate. <laughs> Our next category is one that I have teased early on and I've already given away my answer to and also my follow-up answer to. So do you, do you want to go first with this one? Because I'm going to be quick. The next one is probably... This, I think, might be the cornerstone uh, award for Amblin. I think it is like... Uh, it's a studio that has with it the most 
emotional attachment and the most emotional baggage in some cases. And that can be eliciting huge belly laughs or real heartfelt sobs. So this is the award for Biggest Cry. A deeply, deeply personal choice uh, and one that I think forms the basis of all of our generations and the previous generation's attachment to Amblin as a brand. Yes. I hate the word brand. No, Amblin as a dream factory. (laughs) 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 I don't think I've ever laughed like that before. Was Was that a conscious choice? No. Because he kind of caught me as I was just starting to... (laughs) come out and say something and I was like ah Dream Factory good one I didn't know that I was going <laughs> to no, say that no I like Dream Factory yeah. come on so what was, what was your biggest cry Andrew um, I know what it's not going to be it's not E.T. because it's a film I still have not yet cried <laughs> um, try, like part of me was like kind of like looking back over these and yeah. trying to think when did when did I cry yeah um, and there were a couple of moments mm-hmm. I, I cried in Dad because um, yeah. it's just a film that, that it runs it's hard, it's hard not to yeah it, 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 it's bit, there's some big sw- big emotional moments within that, that entirely unearned but yes, yes. <laughs> um, an American tale I had a little cry yeah. on a somewhere Papa? out there <laughs> Papa <laughs> but uh, the film I ended up on it was the biggest cry and it like even like this will come as no surprise to yeah. people who are um loyal listeners who have uh, gone through every episode here because I even like started tearing up in the episode as I was talking about it is uh, The Land Before Time and namely the yeah. moment where Littlefoot's mum dies yeah, and she's not Irish and she says go Littlefoot let, let, let your heart guide you uh, and then and then the kind of like five minutes that the film deals with the emotional fallout yeah. of that um, is really quite mm-hmm. I was so taken with how yeah. affecting I found it all yeah. in the yeah. moment and again as I was saying earlier with The Land Before Time just how much that kind of the nostalgia of that was so under my skin in a way that I didn't quite realise really yeah. really came to the fore in that moment and yeah, um, yeah I was a wreck <laughs> and that might be my pick for favourite podcast moment of the series was your you, you recounting that in the episode <laughs> <And I'm just laughs> which was a lovely episode anyway but then you know, it's nice to hear the emotion in people's voices in this... I do have a soul. <laughs> in this arch-ironic world of ours, it's nice to hear genuine emotion come to the fore. <laughs> I don't know why I'm acting like I'm in Alan Bennett's talking head. Oh, <laughs> uh, weird. Let your heart guide you. It whispers. So listen closely. Mother? Mother? Any any honourable mentions? Any follow-ups that you'd like to flag? Or no, beyond the that, there were there, nothing. Color purple made me tear up. Um, the, the end of again, that, even in spite yeah, of the what that film that does, it like, still does quite teary. Kind um, of stick landing through the strength of uh, on-screen. And again, like a lot of that was more down to having read so much about yeah. Color Purple when it came to that episode. Yeah. And uh, I felt very in it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. Yeah, when we got to that. <laughs> so I, I think, that. yeah, it was just going to let let me go yeah. at any point. Okay. And again, we, we should say Beautiful that uh, anyone out there should most 
definitely read uh, mm-hmm. Miss Walker's novel, The Colour Purple. It's a, a tremendous... Um, well, don't you write more on that in the Tremendous book. piece of literature. <laughs> but for, for, my, for my end, obviously, I, I've kind of cheated by covering this in previous categories. I can't deny how much I cry when George kisses Lorraine at the enchantment mm-hmm. as he dancing back to the future and Marty's out back to life. Um, but who am I kidding? Obviously, it's going to be E.T., isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it is... I did mean to... And I... I forgot to do this in terms of the stats. I did mean to like properly go oh, through. Oh, find out, like, yeah. Because I had, I did start it. I just didn't finish it. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. I do think it, more people more, don't cry than it, do it cry. It was. I got to the point where it was taking out. It was yeah. about four to six, I think. Four, four, four cry, six not cry. Yeah. I mean, either way, yeah. I, I, this gets it milks me, and, and I, no matter even if I I think about this goddamn thing, I listen to the the soundtrack of this mo the, the 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 score that accompanies this moment, and I have to fight back the tears. Even in the episode, I was close to crying as well. Um, obviously, it it, it you, the bit when Et dies and Elliot is sort of a, a shell um, as he um, thinks that his soul bonded partner is dead. The moment when Et comes alive and Elliot goes. Ah! That amazing sound that he can make that I, it's impossible to replicate. <laughs> but the bit ah. <laughs> all of that, I'm able to kind of keep it, keep the 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 the, um, the, the pangs of, of tears in my chest. But the bit that kind of punches me in the stomach and forces me to ugly cry, properly yeah. snotty blubber, is when they're being chased by the authorities and they're approaching the blockade in the road, and you think, oh no, they're going to die, <laughs> and then. Then in in, in, in in what is maybe the purest distillation of movie magic, and this is not me being trite or glib, I genuinely believe that this is one of the best examples of what cinema can do as a, a machine for creating empathy, yeah. to, as what Ebert said, uh, is when E.T. lifts up all the boys on their bikes and they take over and the score, na, 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 na. and you have their dazed reactions as that, whoa. And it is... It is Again, it's not tears of sadness, but it is just tears of pure exhilaration. Yeah, and it is all the gears feeling proxy. <laughs> all the gears click, um, and it's almost tears of relief. It's similar mm. to the end of Toy Story when the aliens save them all from the furnace. Toy Story three, sorry, when the aliens. Yeah, it is the, the tears of relief, but it is also t- tears of seeing something work so perfectly. Um, but it just in life when something wonderful and unexpected happens that is such a really perfect encapsulation of that feeling which yeah you know it's not it's a fleeting feeling that you encounter unfortunately too rarely in life so it is it's nice to have that feeling embalmed shotguns in... are walkie talkies <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's undone that though he's, he's undone, undone it now he's gone back it's not George Lucas he listens and he he will undo his, his tweaking so yeah I, I I would be disingenuous to pretend that it's not that one moment from yes. the tea that is the one that uh... I, I mean again exactly where I thought you were going. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and this is another undeniable one that I just could not no, yeah could absolutely not, I mean, not kid myself on I, know, I, I completely understand it despite <laughs> having never cried at that moment I am aware I do feel things in that moment listener I do feel things <laughs> but no it, it is a thing like, it is it is uh, one of the great things about film we're both big film boys and one of the things that is, is, is the most glorious thing about this weird art form is that it, it can excavate emotions uh, yeah in life, sometimes you're unable to really deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, E.T.'s maybe That's the finest true. example of all time for that. <laughs> Certainly for, for little Josh Glenn over here. 
moving on from tear jerkers to mind scratchers. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so as we've gone across this journey of the eighties, like and and the diligent podcast host that we are, mm-hmm. we'd like to do some further reading, further viewing, mm-hmm. and uh, that this has led us to kind of explore other areas of the filmographies, the yeah. directors, yeah. or the actors. We want to be as contextually astute as possible. Exactly, exactly. And this has taken us on the kind of a ride from uh, <laughs> the howling to a guy named Joe. <laughs> <guy named> Joe. <laughs> yeah. So the next category is favorite further reading mm-hmm. slash viewing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joshua Glenn, yes. what was your favorite further reading slash viewing? Well, this is one... <laughs> Ultimately, I didn't struggle, but there are a few that I do want to give a little hat tilt to mm-hmm. uh, that, that we've... Um, so in, in ascending order, uh, The Howling by Joe Dante, his mm-hmm. offering to the uh, to the werewolf subgenre. I think it was a very... It's a lovely little Arrow video set out now for its oh. 40th anniversary. <laughs> so not the first time we've mentioned Arrow video. I spend a lot of money on Arrow video. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, not not quite the heights of American Werewolf, but by all accounts, a much nicer filmmaker. Um, I also uh, I really enjoyed The Fun House by Toby Hooper. I think I enjoyed his, The Fun House. Yeah. yeah. Texas Chainsaw was one of my all-time favourites. The Fun House is a really fun uh, welding of those outsider sensibilities with something a little bit more maybe mainstream palatable, but still weird and off-putting. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I've got to take shrinking films wherever I can, so the, the chance to finally, the excuse rather, to finally complete my viewing of Fantastic Voyage by Richard Fleischer was much appreciated, and it's a film that's tremendous fun, <laughs> albeit <laughs> rather dated in some respects. Uh, Don Bluth's Secret of Neem, uh, really great. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Perhaps my favourite yeah. of his films so far, I think. Yes. No. I know one before Ty. I, yeah. I think probably yeah. not. Oh, Secret of Neem is a better um, story, though, isn't it? <laughs> And Carry on. <laughs> my, my my second choice for favorite further reading is one that I like all the more for how surprised I, I like it, and that of course is Barry Levinson's second feature, The Natural. Oh, fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> Two hour, what twenty minute yeah. baseball drama starring Redford. Oh, please don't tell me you like that more than uh, I do. I, no, I like it more than Diana. I'm sorry. Oh to, no! I don't know. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the Diana, and I think we had a good chat about the Diana on the Young Sherlock Holmes episode, but. The Natural, because I'm not a sportsman. <laughs> this isn't my pick, by the way. I'm not a sportsman, um, but I love Redford, and I love the look and feel of the movie that he made about baseball. The Natural it is probably uh, oh, the Natural of a diner. Don't don't see it. Listen, man, I'm as surprised as you are. But that, that's a movie that I think back on fondly. Think one day I'm going to rewatch that and have a wonderful time. <laughs> Next rainy Sunday, I'm going to rewatch the Natural. No, but what I can't deny uh, is is the film that, um, it, and it's a huge cultural touchstone that I had hitherto uh, not uh, touched, despite having the poster on my university wall. <laughs> in first, second, and third year, and yes. this was brought back into my mind because the other night I had a dream that I was hanging out with John Belushi and we were referencing this movie. I had a John Belushi dream. I had a John Belushi dream. <laughs> of course, the best movie that I've watched uh, in preparation for a podcast episode was Redacted's 1981 classic, The Blues Brothers. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas. 
Half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. The Blues Brothers. Yeah, which, you know, you've probably all seen it and you're thinking, Josh, you're a fool for not having seen it until you were in your late 20s. But, you know, here we are. And it's great. It's great. It's great. It's a great movie. It's just funny. It's full of life. It's got some of the greatest stingers of all time in it. Great mm-hmm. car chases. Great carnage. A lot of heart, you know, given its SNL origins. Just two buddies making a weird passion project that should be indulgent and messy, but is actually a stellar example kind of... of yeah. And probably, even factoring in Ghostbusters, which I like more than you, probably the best SNL film, right? I can't think of... Bruce Brothers is the best, isn't it? Yeah, SNL yeah, film. yeah, yeah. I, can't, I mean, I can't think of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, The Blues Brothers was my favourite bit of further reading. I love that. I love what about... that. I love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love this journey for me. So yes, I like that more than The Natural. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dinah. <laughs> Dinah! Um, it was a weird case to me because like, a lot of the kind of stuff that we went back for and like I, I likewise enjoyed the fun house. Yeah. A lot of the other stuff that we did for contextual I'd kind of I had seen already. Yeah. yeah. Natural I didn't love. I, know, I liked yeah. it. Yeah. I didn't love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I agree with your critiques of that film. I, it's baffling to me that I like it as much <laughs> as I do. But I do. That's I movies, do. It's, man. It's fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've kind of gone on a two track here because okay. like I, I again, I'd seen The Howling before, and it was nice to come back and see that. Yeah. I'd, I'd uh, trying to think now of the other ones. I got a guy named Joe. No, bang, average. <laughs> <laughs> I won't dwell on that one. <laughs> um, so for me, it kind of came down to that idea of like further reading slash viewing. Um, the best film that I'd seen that I had not seen previously, mm. uh, kind of going off reacting quite nicely to your Blues Brothers one was uh, Archie Cutter's uh, Belushi documentary from 2020. Oh, nice. I really, I, yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed it. And it like, because it has uh, a lot of kind of intimate detail in there. It has a lot of tapes and diaries yeah. from his, from himself and also from his wife who, by all accounts, was very, had a very nice relationship with the filmmaker and the crew on that and was quite open to allowing this document to be formed. And it, yeah has contributions from all the kind of names that you'd expect. Ackroyd is in yeah, there. Yeah, all the names you'd expect that work yeah. with him. And also the, like, the kind of people on the fringes. And it does this thing where it kind of blends archive footage with kind of uh, New Yorker-esque animation segments as well. It's a, it's a really nice account of the kind of individual of who he is and the kind of... Yeah. Uh, again, kind of speaks to that, like you were saying earlier with Continental, like that kind of deep regret and shame and yeah he, he died so young and what have you so that was certainly the best film i saw as a kind of contextual viewing but for my actual answer for my favorite further reading it would um uh it would have to be um the same river twice alice walker's kind of companion piece almost yeah to the color purple which is uh Again, kind of a collage of her diary. Uh, it's a diary, a journal, and also her her screenplay version of the Color Purple, all kind of put into yeah. one package. And I just thought it was a fascinating yeah, yeah. document to go through and just experience someone trying to figure this weird journey out of someone adapting something so deeply yeah. personal and something so deeply felt within herself and handing it off. 
to the biggest filmmaker in the world and trying yeah. to find some way to feel comfortable about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating read. That and like the, the Colour Purple the book, novel itself, itself is, yeah. is, is, is brilliant. But yeah. I, I just thought, for particularly for the case of research for this podcast, the same River Twice was... Yeah. It was, it was oh. indelible. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. That is lovely. So yeah, listeners, um, I mean, maybe check out the Spielberg film if you want to, but certainly read Ice Walker's book, The good Colour movie, Purple. Man. I still think it's a good movie. <laughs> I still want to read Same River Twice. Mm. I still I'll, want I'll to read it. It's still got you, my uh, post-it notes in it, I believe. <laughs> I think, like, of all the things we've covered, I think it's because we did read the novel in preparation for the episode. That the colour purple is the world that I feel I've immersed myself in the most mm. throughout the podcast. Yeah, you know, obviously to mitigate the fact that we're two white Englishmen yeah. discussing. This is why a book I uh, about, you know, so yeah. desperately nervously read. <laughs> Every... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So uh, from that, and, and please do check out everything that Andy and I have mentioned. All all excellent pieces of work in their own right. Um, one of the things that uh, Amblin is famous for, known for, certainly from this time period, is the proliferation of younglings, a.k.a. children. <laughs> I've been um, thinking a lot about the Star Wars prequels recently, so it's <laughs> not, not far away in my mind. Carry on. Um, so, yeah, we can't really do a review of the Amblin 80s without talking about our favourite child performances. Mm. So, yeah, Andy, was this an easy one for you, or was this one you had to give much consideration to? It was... In the end, it was quite easy. Yeah. Because I feel like there's only really two or three to really consider seriously, personally. Uh, I think there's some, like, particularly on the on the vocal performance side, uh-huh. I think there's a, a lot of really good performances yeah. in there. From yeah. Fivel to Littlefoot and the gang. I think that they're all, particularly Fivel is a very yeah. um, expressive and quite like, uh, um, and I think Barry said it as well in, the, in that episode that he does just feel like an actual child yeah. and it's not really doesn't really feel like a scripted character it just feels like yeah. a child going through this world but um for me it kind of came down to two one of which was henry thomas in et as elliot um which is probably i imagine a lot of the go-to answers for this kind of in general for the kind of the best child performance yeah. um of that decade in, like beyond the Amblin canon and one of the best and, and rightfully so but I think there's one that kind of takes a slight slight level above it for me in that it, he's being asked to think outside of the kind of his own experience a bit more and actually have to kind of really get into the depths of a character and the depths of what it would feel like to be going through such a unique experience mm. And that is Christian Bale as Jamie Graham in Empire oh, of the Sun. Okay. Um, I, I I just think the work he's doing in that at the age of eleven to twelve Christ, yeah. is mad, and yeah, the stuff he's being asked to do and the the ideas that he's being asked to accept. Like generally, the idea of child actors is one I find a little troubling because it's like it doesn't quite partic- sit well. Does yeah, because I'm particularly certain films will ask child actors to do certainly emotionally intense scenes that are, you, you are sometimes you are just sat there going like I'm not sure that's okay yes. <laughs> uh, Empire of the Sun toes that line quite well in that like because it's such a like grounded in perspective of a young kid in in this uh, scenario of, mm. of World War 2 
prison, prisoner camp in Shanghai. Yeah. Um, but uh, like just the maturity and the level of understanding and what he is doing and the character he is performing and the responsibility within that that he exudes throughout, particularly in the big moments. Like yeah, a moment we talked about a lot was when he's trying to resuscitate a shot Japanese pilot yeah. after having seen the atom bomb and believing that there's some kind of, that has to be some kind of spiritual level somewhere out there to kind of cling into and hold yeah. on to. Yeah. Despite all this kind of death and destruction he's seeing to level that within a performance when you're 12 years old and have to bring in the extra contextual information of, a Japanese soldier and a, a yeah. British boy in World War Two days after the atom bomb is dropped is mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that, like, you know, Christian Bale, as we know now, is the highly acclaimed and incredible actor that he is, but it's there. It is all the yeah. It's, it, it, it's there in 1987. <laughs> Even the famous intensity you can feel, yeah, from like, from the screen in that performance, yeah. Learned a new word today. Atom bomb. It was like a white light in the sky. Like God taking a photograph. I saw it. I can't disagree. As a try, I that that whole episode in our podcast history is a bit of a blur for me because oh, yeah, I was, was very your, much in the midst the of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, that's a film that I have a lot of uh, appreciation and fondness for, um, but it's one that I ought to revisit because a lot of it, <laughs> I could not really tell you now what we spoke about on the it's episode. It's a good episode, man. It's a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, that's so myself. So it's funny you went for, you went for heft, I think. When yes, it comes I to, think I did go for heft. I, I understand because there, there's a lot of performances in the Amblin stable in this period that, that do convey an awful lot of emotion um, and experience and, and, and it, it's incredibly impressive. Um, I, I, I'd struggle to convey that much emotion now as, as a man <laughs> approaching 30. Um, the ones that I pondered tended to air closer to comedy. Uh, when I first thought about this, I thought, how can I not say Drew Barrymore, who gives one of the most mm-hmm. comically astute great. children performances? Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just such a joy in that film, and her comic timing is impeccable. Uh, she's adorable, and she you know, she can tug the heartstrings as well as anybody else in that film when she wants to. But and part of this is born from a subsequent conversation with Sebastian Jones in the episode. Oh, yes. But um, yes. I think I would struggle to really I'm, I'm say that I was uh, fond of <laughs> any child performance from an 80s Amblin film as much as Jeff Cohen yes. as Junk in The Goonies. What a shout! That dude. <laughs> I did not. I. I, I mean, I, I like the film much less now as a man in his twenties than I did when I was a kid. But you like that as a ten-year-old. I just think he's 
He's absolutely so good. hilarious. He's so good Particularly, at that film. and I mentioned it in the episode when he is he escapes from the Fratelli's <laughs> restaurant and he runs to the main road and he flags the car down and says, "Excuse me, you gotta help me! I was captured by these disgusting people, the Fratelli's." He like talks himself into the noose, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the the older Fratelli brother turns the car light on and it's yeah. revealed that he's and this his Not reaction is horror, horrible. Jeff Cohen's reaction. He's the, music. Energy, yeah, the energy he brings, the, the way that he can, he, he is that film's comedic pulse. Stop! I'm just stuck here! seems to be the problem. Look, mister, I need a ride. My friends and I just had a run-in with these really disgusting people. You might have heard of them, the Fratellis. Well, we found their hideout. And could you please, please take me to the sheriff's station? I can describe all three of them. And he, I just, I, I just think about a reaction shot of him in the freezer with the, with the corpse. It's the death. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a little bit. I think we tried to navigate the sloth stuff in the episode, so I don't really want to really take that. If I say so, we did it okay. <laughs> it's something that I'm still quite uncomfortable thinking of, so just to put that to one side, it, it, it perhaps is... No, it's not the most comedic... It's not, it's not the best comedic performance because Back to the Future exists, but it certainly is a really deft Great comic performance, regardless of age. Um it. He's and so it, good in it. Yeah, he's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, he, he's so funny. The worst he's thing so, I ever did. The worst thing. I like this kid, Mark. I like him too, dude. I like him too. I like him too. <laughs> um, oh, great shout. So from favourite... Great shout. I love yeah, that. Yeah, well, we, both, we both sort of strayed from the path a little bit there. And I'm happy with both of them. Because I did ponder Christian Bale. Because that was... Um, you know that was a. a it's a, a film. I, it's a, a again. I nearly said Empire of the Sun for my further reading as the, yeah, the yeah. JB Ballard novel because just generally like there's a few within this mix that have weirdly kind of just stuck their hooks in for a, a long time and Empire yeah. of the Sun's a big one for me for that. Mm. More on that in a bit. <laughs> oh, muy interesante. Um, so from favorite child performance, children are famously small people. <laughs> To uh, the favorite performance by a relatively small acting role. This, yeah, that's that's right. It's our favorite supporting performance category. This was a lot of fun to work yeah. through. This was a hell of a yeah. lot of fun. So, where 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 did you land on this mm. one, man? Where did you go? Where did you land? So, it's a weird one because, like, for a long time, I was decide trying to decide between two Christopher Lloyd performances. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that being Dot Brown and yep. Bats of Future. And uh, Judge Doom, in, yeah. Um, Hugh Frame, Roger Rabbit, yeah. But then I had a. There was just some moment in me. I was like, "Be truthful with yourself. Who were you most impressed by as a supporting actor throughout all these films that we've looked at?" Yeah. And you've touched on it earlier. Yeah. Um, and I'm so I, pleased that you're going to say that. And I, say. it's Thomas Festus yeah. Wilson yeah. in Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah. Because he is playing not one, not two. Not three, yeah, but four. <laughs> We're talking Biff. We're talking Biff. We're talking Biff. We're talking We're Griff. Griff. <laughs> I just think, honestly, that was like the main thing. Maybe that is like my, my to retroactively rewrite my answer. Most in, 
proven childhood, it's Thomas Esmond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> specifically him in yeah. that movie. Yeah. G- g- yeah, it's I just I was bowled over by how much I was like mm-hmm. so, and I was so happy when we were recording that episode, and everyone was like, you know, who is the best thing about this? <laughs> you know, who film? rules than anyone? <laughs> he is just so good in that. Yeah, film. yeah, and it is like as you were saying with that expression of the, the that Vista Glide scene where you kind of forget mm-hmm. that it's uh, the same actor yeah. reacting. Yes, a lot of that is to do with how well they've composited the yeah. shot and how well it moves and yeah. you forget that they would have shot that at separate times. But it's also because he's so good at making those two same people at different points in time <laughs> yeah. feel distinctive and how much... And again, again comes down to Zemeckis and Gale's script where they... Re- slightly twing like change the way that they've written the character to represent that time has changed and made them slightly wiser and what have you yeah the even just the way to kind of like deliver that performance in the way that you believe it's still the same person but yeah 50 years later or like yeah what whatever have what have you and to, to also then go from like seeing him so broad at the start as griff as yeah. this kind of like Cybertronic amplified uh, version of of Biff. Well, since when did you become the physical type? It's so, there's so many things that he's being called upon to do with under so much kind of like changing a costume and yeah, makeup yeah, and what have yeah. you. But he just he delivers it so much, and he's such a and it's a point Dan said as well. He's such a generous actor as well. So whenever he's sharing a scene with someone, yeah. he's even himself. Yeah. He's, like, he's just so good at like kind of allowing his character to kind of naturally react to whoever he's in the scene with and like builds a, what who ends up being like a formidable villain more so than you think maybe the film wants him to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's really, really menacing. He really, really makes scary in the across, across that whole trilogy. I can't wait to talk about his oh, man, performance in part three no. either because he's equally as good as in part three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that, yeah, that's my stellar answer. Stellar choice. And I, 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 again, with my answer for VFX shot, I tried to cover this space as well with that because I ultimately did not land on Tom F. Wilson for this mm-hmm. as much as I pained, much as it pained me. I'm just trying to spread the love a little bit. So I owned an art a lot. I think I, I love um, Amblin Mums. I think there's some really great Amblin Mum performances. <laughs> <love Simpson. laughs> so Frances Lee McCain in Gremlins, she gives a lot of. Mm-hmm. She's got. A, she's a lot of fun. It's her reaction shots to her daft husband's shitty inventions are hilarious. The scene where she defends herself in the house. Against she does the so well. She takes so out funny. so many Grems. I, just, I love. I love her as an as an actually so funny. She's. Um, I mentioned it in the previous in in the episode itself, but real life, the Albert Brooks movie, she's hilarious in that mm. movie. She's great. Uh, I love Jo Beth Williams in Poltergeist. She she's great. I yeah, nearly thought yeah. I, I thought about her. In she's this she's as well, got actually. a lot of chutzpah, and it's she's someone who I you know rue not seeing more of cinematically. I know. Post yeah, Poltergeist. Totally agree. She's great. Uh, you could pick anyone. I guess who, we could watch Poltergeist too. You could. Who wants to? do that? <laughs> You could literally pick anyone from Back to the Future. You could Crispin Glover. So close to being him, Christopher Lloyd. So close to being oh, him, I know Tom F. Wilson. So close to being him. But as Andy mentioned in the previous episode, it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, and a birthday tradition of mine is to watch Back to the Future, uh, which is my favorite film of all time. Spoiler alert for ten minutes from now. Um, and watching it <laughs> <Ten>. again, <laughs> watching it again this time. Um, and this is something that I think we broached in the episode. I said I think this person is the MVP. You did say watching this it in again the now. I was so enamored with 
every choice she makes. The best supporting performance to me is Leah Thompson in Back to the Future. She is great. No, she, she's such a good shout. I dare say my, my girlfriend is not as taken with the film as I am, and I think her big problem is the treatment of Lorraine in the film, which I do understand. Yeah. She's often very passive. I think on a macro level, she is ultimately emboldened to not let go of her life like she originally does and sort of turn to the bottle and sort of give up because, you know, everything's largely gone to shit. I think it, the film ultimately is quite kind to her and it encourages her to retain that exuberance she has in the 50s. But even even aside from the writing, what she the choices she makes in a scene with her co-stars, <laughs> I just don't, there's no one that I relish to see more than Leah Thompson. Just the way she says, Over there, on my hope chest, <laughs> isn't he a dream she is so fun she's lovable you want the best for her you you feel the the conflict inside yeah. the, the the need to rebel um you know the, the the need to be true to herself the vulnerability she has with aggressors like biff i mean the way that we spoke about it in the episode with the yeah. way that the scene is played when biff assaults her it's pure horror for, he, he is pure malicious menace she's pure helplessness it's, dark. it's really dark um and yeah and, and and i'm getting sort of goosebumps even just thinking about that scene but i just think she's so such a deft performer and she's done good work since she's sort of how the duck how are the duck dennis the menace <laughs> she's but i just i think it isn't it's a masterful performance it is it, it maybe the Perhaps the best comedic performance in the film, the, the stuff she's doing, making Marty uncomfortable at the dinner table, she's tremendous, but she has a lot, an awful lot of heart. And I think Bob Gale even said, Lorraine has to be the one who ultimately rejects Marty. So mm. much of that film working, I think, is on her shoulders. Yeah. Not just the character of Lorraine, but Leah Thompson as an actor. Yeah. And she is just, she's wonderful, and we're so lucky to have her. <laughs> <laughs> so Leah Thompson is my choice for favourite supporting That's performance. That's a great shout. Now we come to my favourite category. <laughs> the handiest possible category. <laughs> this is the category that we have dubbed the Good Boy Award. <laughs> and it is the award given for best dog in an Amblin movie across the 1980s. Um, I, myself, am a dog lover. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever a dog, canine... Critter is <laughs> up in a film. I'm going to instantly hook into that. Um, in fact, most of the time I'll take half a star off a film if they just did not feature a dog in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, particularly in a film where it's like, why isn't there a dog? Like, Dad, why wasn't there a dog? <laughs> That's a film that is so ready for a dog. <laughs> I convinced myself there was a dog in dad. There's no dog go- in find- dad. <laughs> I was Googling dad's dog and it was not giving me what I wanted. <laughs> I can imagine not. <laughs> um, so yes, this is the category for best dog. Um, and I... I uh, so many good movies. I think dogs. you should go first. Yeah? Yeah. I am excited about this. Yeah, I and mean, this is your one. Uh, <laughs> this is your time. Because there are a lot of good boys in the 80s. There are a lot of, a lot good, of good boys. boys. A lot of great uh, boys. Einstein's a great boy. Einie. He's such a good... He's such a good little boy. <laughs> the first ever time traveller. First ever time traveller is Einstein. At least we forget. <laughs> and there is, of course, um, Barney, as played by Mushroom in Gremlins. Yeah, the, 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 the much tormented The much Barney. tormented Barney. Um, great performance by Mushroom, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I can't imagine what the headspace mushroom had to get into to be tangled up in those <laughs> in those lights at that given time. But also to react really, yeah, he yeah. has such a good chemistry with Gizmo. In he a does, lot he of really does in those movies. That uh, so well done, mushroom. I wonder you, if we're going to say boy. the same dog as our pick. Um, is it E Buzz from Poltergeist? It is E Buzz from because... Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> The golden lab. The golden, <laughs> golden standard. Shun. The golden standard gold for yeah. on-screen movie dogs. So I think, like, as we move this award into the 90s, I think we can be rest assured that this will be now dubbed the E-Buzz Award for Best Boy. The E-Buzz <laughs> Award for Best Boy. So what made you pick him over, say, Einstein or Barney? One or shot. Harry's dog from Batteries Not Included, lest we forget. Oh, I'd forgotten Also a very good dog. dog. Very loyal, yeah, it's a good, good boy. Dog. But he comes yeah. in quite late in the game. He comes quite in late, late but game. he makes an indelible impression. Something that is different about E-Buzz. Yeah. He's there from the off. He's the first, the first character we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. the first one. He, the way we're introduced to the family in Poltergeist, you're following E-Buzz going around yeah. the house, making sure everyone's okay. Yeah. And throughout the rest of that film, his dedication <laughs> is oh, unwavering. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's so perceptive. He maybe has the most agency of anyone in the film. He instigates action. He's loyal. He goes He's back so to rescue loyal. the kid from the pool. He is maybe the there best is character. One shot that has lived in my head this whole experience of doing this podcast, and it's the one where he does the double take back. <laughs> 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 as he's about to get into the cab with the, with the kids of, of the family and poltergeist and I've forgotten the name um, that he's about to go off with the kids as yeah. they deal with the spooky happenings and moving out of the house yeah. and there's a point where he looks back at Joe Beth Williams and he literally like looks to the cab looks back to the house <laughs> then dedicates himself to the cab. He's like, no, there is still a problem here, but I yeah. shall, I shall protect these children of my life. And then he's shown in the front seat next to the cab driver. Yeah. He's ready. That he's there. He's going to tell him the directions. That boy knows where he's going. Oh, he's he buzz. He buzz. He is just. He, he. I'm so. I'm so so happy that we both. It, it could the same. Couldn't be. It couldn't be anyone else. No. No, no I, dog is. As indispensable. I'm going to have to share a screenshot when we share this episode. Oh, please, please, please. Of that double I think take. We'll, be talking, <laughs> we'll be talking about Ebus for a long time to come. He's such a good, he such is, a natural. He is, he's so charismatic. He's so charismatic, that dog. I wish that I picked him for favourite <laughs> Supporting no, no. That's so insulting to, to Leah Thompson. No, he's a great dog. He's a, he, he's maybe... I, I was thrown by his performance yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it, again like such good comic timing such compassion mm-hmm. great character best character in the film um should have won the Academy Freed, Award feeling family freeling uh, freeling family something like that <laughs> <laughs> so from Andy's award oh, to the award that perhaps point. I was the most excited to introduce this is of course the one we have we have uh Deemed the Dick Miller Award for Favourite Bit Player. That's right. Too small a role to be classed as supporting actor, but, you know, present in the film enough as a, as a runner, yeah. as a sort of tangential runner on the fringes to make a lasting impression. This is a really, really had fun with this one. It was a hard one as well. It really was a hard I, one. Because I kind of want to have my thought process and my argument, because I still haven't fully settled on that. Do you want me to go first? I would like to make the argument for the distinction of... So I think the reason we call it the Dick Miller Award is because he Mm. is a Dante regular. Um, If you think of Dick Miller, he plays the xenophobic neighbour in... Mr. Fuckman. Mr. Fuckman. 
Fossilman. Who appears to die in Gremlins. Which might be a play. (laughs) He appears to die in Gremlins, but is resurrected, thankfully, in the new batch, uh, which we're going to be talking about soon. I'm so excited. Um, But Dick Dick, Dick Miller is an old, sort of Corman-esque B-movie actor Mm -hmm. from the 50s and 60s who Dante, bless him, ever the loyal filmmaker, kept in his stable. As we discovered with... Terminator as well. Yeah, yes. (laughs) As we discovered with Lovely Martin on the Inner Space episode, he has been in every single one of Dante's films yep. in his lifetime. Yeah. Um, and he he maybe the listener is not too familiar with Dick Miller. I suppose what you would describe as the quality that he brings to a film is it's not a major role. It's a role that doesn't really have any bearing on the plot. It's not a role that it may not even interact with the main character. It is a character sort of that adds texture to the wider world um, that could very, very easily sink into the background. This award singles out the excellence in making a meal out of such a small textural performance. Is there anything right. you want to add? So I think no, but I'm I'm glad you said. Does this. that make sense? It does. So it's because I kind of had two okay. to choose from, and one of them I was going to rule out because I was thinking it's probably more on the line that you were talking. This the, the one that I kind of was considering, I think, is maybe a bit too pivotal to. Everything yeah, there's, there's, there's one... one there was, shall I talk through my thought process with this? Yes, because it might come up. <laughs> yeah. So the, 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 the one... The, the, these are my runner-ups. These are the ones that I considered before ultimately going for someone else. The, 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 the one that kind of rises to the surface is, is the one who birthed the quote that I picked as my favourite. Um, Hoyt Axton as Randall Peltzer in Gremlins. Oh, I don't not, know where this is going to... Not, not, not my pick, but he is certainly... Um, he is not... I mean, he does instigate the plot for sure, but from that point onwards, he's relegated in the sidelines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you see him occasionally in insert sequences um, doing business not related to the main plot at all, just adding sort of comedic texture. And he's so funny. He's a physical presence that's hilarious. He's got a great voice for comedy. And he plays the sort of dumb, befuddled American outside of America so, so well. Um, so almost him. Another one, now this one you might think is a supporting actor, but I love Dee Wallace in E.T., but I would argue that she is not in the film enough to really be so considered supporting. making me feel I, better about the choice. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that Dee Wallace is a bit player in E.T. more than a supporting actor, because the supporting actor, Henry O'Thomas is the main one, so you've got his brother, you've got Drew Barrymore as supporting. You know, it's kind of a three-hander, a four-hander including E.T., yeah. Uh, I, I would argue D. Wallace in that film is a supporting, a, a bit player, but as, as opposed to Hoy Axon, who brings the comedy chops, she brings a real nice warmth. She's lovely. He hates men, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. She helps make them all feel lived in, and she taps into that Spielbergian messiness, you know, yeah. effortlessly. Also, is great in The Howling. Just mm-hmm. a lovely, lovely, mm-hmm. lovely presence in a film. Uh, and of course, even though he's barely in it, I've got to give a shout out to Keith David for Always, because Keith Yay. David is one of the all-time yeah. greats. <laughs> uh, if you haven't listened to the Always episode, uh, please do watch uh, There's Something About Mary, um, <laughs> particularly the opening 10 minutes. Um, but ultimately, where I landed, and this is someone we discussed um, pleasingly um, uh, in depth in the episode is the performance of the manager of Jack Putter in the movie Inner Space. That's right. Interesting. It's Henry Gibson uh, <laughs> in the movie Inner Space he who plays the supermarket manager who is the fella who says the line You've got a great future ahead of you in retail food marketing. I, 
I just hate to see you throw it all away by going psycho on us. That's right, Mr. Wormwood. And that, to me, is exactly what I want a bit player to do. He, mm-hmm. He's in about three scenes. He is not relevant to the plot at all, but he gives context to our protagonist, Jack Putter, played by Martin Short. Um, he gives a sense of the, the, the banality of the life that Jack Putter leads. And he could so easily fade into the background, but what Henry Gibson brings to this movie, he makes an absolute meal out of it. He's so funny. I think that... <laughs> oh, God, what have you done, Jack? Oh, Jack what have what you, have you done? done? <laughs> he might be responsible for some of the biggest belly laughs in a film right. that is not wanting for... Be- certainly for me. So he, Dick Miller aside, he certainly is the man that I would uh, say is the closest to yeah. capturing that bit player elegance that Dick Miller perfectly encapsulates. So that, uh, that, that was my journey. I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are. So talk us through the... Because like, my initial thought yeah. was like, I suppose I should give it to Dick Miller as Mr. Futterman in Gremlins. We've named it after him, so we've given him, you know, we've given him the recognition. Yeah, and he's also quite... ends up being quite a significant player in that franchise. Yeah. yeah. So the two I was kind of... <laughs> on a track with. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting hearing your thought process because I'm not too sure if it helps me split them. Interesting. Um, but I think I'm going to go with a different one for number... I'm going to... I think I know what I'm going to say is my number one. My number two is also from the same film. Oh, I think yeah. you will agree he's a bit player. I think I know what you're going to say. the main reason I... I feel a great fondness for him at the minute is because I've also been watching a lot of Star Trek. Yeah, Virgin. exactly. <laughs> and I this Robert Picardo <laughs> as the cowboy in Inner Big Space. Jack. <laughs> Big Jack. <laughs> Don't knock, just come. Because <laughs> uh, that is just like a, a complete Looney Tune performance. He's and bonkers. He's like, yeah. And like, even just like what, and now I like, I've listened a lot, a big thing for me in like, way back in lockdown one was starting Star yeah. Trek TV shows from the beginning and going through I'm now on the sixth season of Voyager at this current Crikey. moment in time so I've watched a lot of Star Trek a lot of Star Trek and so Robert Picardo is on my brain a lot because he plays the doctor aboard the holo- <laughs> medical holograph- holographic doctor on a Voyager and like just seeing that that performance kind of paired to the cowboy in the inner space was wild to me yes. <laughs> and, he, and he is great and he is an incredibly energetic actor and also a Dante regular as well he mm. pops up a lot in the 90s yeah that's cool. uh, to see uh, more of him yeah uh, but because I was considering that number one but hearing that you also went with an inner space character has made now <laughs> position a uh, <laughs> this next choice. So curious, man. I uh, no, he's not, not a Fandango, thankfully. So, no. does the name Will Hare mean anything to you? I don't. I don't think it will. Will Hare like the hair on your head, or hair like the Will Hare played Old Man Peabody <laughs> in, Back, <laughs> in Back to the Future. Uh, the main reason is because the what I the one do of the, the line, best the line readings in yeah, any on. film of this whole thing has been. <laughs> Dearly departed, Will Hare as old man Peabody saying, "Looks like an airplane." Well, I went, and yeah. that is why he is my favorite. <laughs> but the Dick Miller Award for favorite bit player—that is, um, yeah, because he, he brings me so much joy. Does Will Hare as old man Peabody? <laughs> <laughs> old man Peabody owned all of this. <laughs> this crazy idea about breeding pine, pine trees. trees. <laughs> 
we're getting into the end game now. Um, as we come into our penultimate uh, category, at least decided by our own thoughts. And that is favourite lead performance. Um, there are a number of incredible performances across uh, the Amblin canon, the 80s. Uh, a lot of which we've already mentioned, but I'm sure there's a few that we've kept under our sleeve <laughs> for what is, uh, you know, quite going to be a, a shiny, what we think of the, as the shiny example of mm-hmm. actually uh, performance in, in these movies. Uh, for me, it came down to three. <sighs> I don't know about you. I think I've I've got a, a long pretty... I've got no it wasn't it was hard for and I've got, I've got a short list of 3 in, including the actual winner. I've got a long list of 6 but okay. I think of yeah it largely it was between those 3. And I originally thought it was going to definitely be one but I did a bit of juggling and realized the eventual winner I plucked from a different category. So. Oh. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean what what give us uh, what were your what were your runners up? Um at number three, <laughs> I had uh, Michael J. Fox yeah. as Martin McFly. Surprisingly, I... little mention of him so far. I know. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mikey. But he goes <laughs> at this point, it goes without saying. He's I know. Brilliant. He is, um, particularly in that first film. Yeah. Because um, I, I do think he's slightly uh, hindered in the second film by yeah. the direction the screenplay takes the character. But there is just something about Michael J. Fox in that first movie. And I think it slightly plays in a. Play, played into his kind of level of exhaustion being tossed yeah, back yeah, between yeah. different sets of Back to the Future in the nighttime and Family Ties in the day that I think like just really plays into the manic energy that's yeah. going on in that performance and I think it like he's it, it, it's a there's a reason why there are so many like performances of that of that kind of ilk that clearly hark back to uh, Michael J. Foster yeah what he's doing fly. in that role yeah um, yeah it instantly iconic Um, but I'm sorry you're not number one Michael (laughs) number two I'd Whoopi Goldberg as Sully in uh, The Colour Purple because I think whatever kind of corners Spielberg himself is cutting in that text Whoopi Goldberg isn't cutting any of them yeah and um, it's a testament to her as the bravery of kind of her yeah her as like a performer in general, like even looking at her stand up and other yeah. work she's done, she's like clearly a very principled and like just unwavering um, individual Definitely. in whatever yeah. she puts her mind to, and that really shines through in the color purple. And like a lot of the reason why that still works as an a- adaptation for me is because of Whoopi Goldberg. Um, she's great, fantastic. Probably should have won the Oscar for that instead of the Ghost, but that's. No hero there. Oscar is an Oscar. But my favourite performance, because I think it's the performance that really keeps um, any kind of like grounding of reality and emotion within it, yes. is uh, the late, great Bob Hoskins oh, as God Eddie Valiant in Two Frame Roger Rabbit. I just cannot get over how good he is in that movie, considering he's acting again. Yeah. He is the... He is the man who broke the ground for the kind of acting you see today where they're acting with so many CG characters. Bob Hoskins is that man that laid that template. (laughs) I've been listening to a lot of the um, old blank check episodes about the Star Wars prequels recently and they've delved into one of the fundamental issues with Attack of the Clones is that the actors were acting against literally nothing. Um, So was Bob Hoskins. So Hayden Christensen, Natalie Portman, Ewan McGregor, you've got no excuse. Bob Hoskins... 
Yeah, sorry. So yeah, do, the, dialogue was, was yeah, <laughs> the dialogue was worse. They were similarly. He was similarly in a space. But there's, I think it, it's just, it is a testament to the kind of actor that Hoskins was that he yeah. took everything, no matter what it was, so seriously. But also was so aware that everything he was doing was playtime. Yeah, and yeah. you see that in everything from <laughs> yeah. Roger Rabbit to Mona Mona Lisa yeah. Smile to not Mona, Mona Lisa, Lisa Smile. Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa. That's, a, that's a very different movie. <laughs> from Mona Lisa to The Long Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa Smile. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, you see it in everything he does, where yeah. he's so so committed and so entrenched in the character he's playing. Yeah, but he knows that at the same time, that keyword is play. Yeah, he knows yeah, yeah, that you have yeah. to keep. Keep your audience on side in some way, but even if he's playing the most despicable human being, yeah, um, he he'll always find a way to kind of keep that glint that he is someone who's having a great time at what he's doing, and that is something that really plays into yeah, who's range Roger Rabbit because he completely sells the world of the film from that that opening opening shot and that opening line like opening gruff kind of tones that he says as he like first dives in as yeah. we first dive into the world and follow him through it um it's just it, it the film does not work with a lesser actor no and it, it it's impossible to see anyone else doing it as yeah. it's just so fundamentally good at just like, like making it everything around him work everything works just like the, 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 the hard boiled element the pathos that he gives in the betty boop scene yeah ah oh, no betty it's, it's it, it, he brings with the delivery of that one line when he's agree when he's sort of like trying to reassure her it speaks to this wealth of history that either they've shared together or or that he this sort of experience that he's had in this this town that wears you down it is yeah it, it's incredible yeah it's, it's amazing the film doesn't work without him no Not matter how good the animation is if he isn't as good as he yeah. is it doesn't work yeah and he's perfect yeah yeah it, it's, I, it's yeah. one of the perfect screen performances yeah. for me it's, it's, it's so perfect it's, <laughs> it, is, it, it is the key we cannot understate enough that film is impossible yet i think that we agree that what is the thing that makes it work is hoskins Betty? Long time no see. What are you doing here? Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, be doo Yeah, you still got it. Is, is he your choice, too? No, um, oh. it was. <laughs> well, get out of here. <laughs> so there's a few comedy performances that I love. Obviously, obviously, Fox and Back to the Future is great. Uh, I really do love Martin Short in his space. I think mm-hmm. too much Martin Short, I think, is a bit repulsive. Like the movie Clifford, you know. I think he needs to have. He's when he plays a straight man, it really works. I love that. I love Belushi in Continental Divide. I think that's fun. Um, and it was Hoskins. Hoskins was my choice. I, I love him as a dude. I want to. I wanted to give him a shout out. But then I was looking through my ranking, and I thought Whoopi Goldberg in Color Purple is pretty one of the great, like, maybe the great debut performance of all time. Just superb, and, and she, she and her work in that film transcends the the difficulties elsewhere and the thorniness elsewhere. Yeah. But ultimately, the one that I did go for, who was my initial choice for child performance but then when oh, I really thought about it I realised that what this guy does I think again is what makes that film because he is the 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 often 
in scenes where he is the only living entity, the only human being <laughs> against an animatronic. And he takes the audience on such a wild emotional journey. He taps into emotional depths that are, you know, again, impossible for someone who is, uh, I suppose he was like 10, 11, 12 at the time. So, of course, my choice is Henry Thomas in E.T. I thought it was weird when you didn't say Henry Thomas for kid before. <laughs> you mentioned this one of your runner-ups, and I purposefully did not pick up on that because <laughs> I just think that... Keep it box rash. <laughs> I think it's... It, it just as it, it had to... I think I had to give it more credit than, than quote-unquote, just a child performance. It is just an incredible performance by yeah. an actor of any age. The variety, the 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 the, um, the spectrum of emotions that he dances along. He's a messy child, attention-seeking, immature. He's also the conduit for this existential crisis <laughs> that he's going through. He's a child of divorce. He just he he taps into so much pain and so much joy and so much ambivalence to the human condition. It's it's remarkable, and uh, I don't think that. Anybody in the eighties, aside from Hoskins and Goldberg, really it, it, between those three, yeah, it is really, really three, close, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, but in yeah, in my in my in my heart of hearts, it had to be Harry Thomas. M- Lovely, yeah. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. There's nothing like that, penis breath, Elliot. <laughs> Sit down. <clears throat> Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Yeah, great shout. <laughs> but it's close, man. It's at the top. There's not much bigger room. Yeah. It's very, very close. Um, so, patient listeners, if you're still here with us right now, which we... <laughs> I know you might not really <laughs> indulged ourselves. <laughs> we said at the start this is either going to be on, eight minutes or beer. eight hours. <laughs> Andy's going to get another beer. Uh, I'll vamp while he's gone. Yeah, I'd like another one, please. Yeah, this is very much um, a treat for me. And it's our second episode. This is not going to be the episode, is it? <laughs> Maybe we'll keep it. I don't know. No, this is uh, we haven't done an awful lot of episodes together, Andy and I, in person. This is the second one we've done in a non-Zoom capacity, and we're just sort of we just we enjoy each other's company. We're good friends, go back a long way. You know, actually, it's been ten years, uh, ten years and a month thus far um, that we have known each other, and uh, that's quite remarkable. I still love him as much as I loved him when I first laid eyes on him when he was dressed as uh, uh, a doctor. He was in 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 full. Uh, full white lab coat, full scrubs regalia at a performance by the Blanks, the late great. Um, what was uh, Ted, the lawyer's name in Sam scrubs? Lloyd. Sam Lloyd. Nephew yeah. Christopher Lloyd. Get out. Ah, oh, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and performed at RSU. I bumped into Andy in his full scrubs and thought, ah, this man looks like Dr. Mickhead. He's, he's going to be a good friend of mine. We're going to do a podcast together in 10 years' time. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Ten years. Cut all that out. That was nonsense. (laughs) Well, I was seeing the playback. (laughs) Okay, so three, two, one. 
So we, at the start, before we hit record, we figured this is either going to be eight minutes long or eight hours long. And I think we're airing towards the latter. In, in our sort of, Slap bang in between. The thing is, we, right, what it comes down to is we, we, we're doing this podcast because we're two, two, two boys, two little <laughs> two boy two men. dweebs, <laughs> two boy men who, as 30 is peeking its head over the crest of that hill, uh, think back to the films that made us and the things that sort of instigated our love for the medium and Amblin as we've discovered with our guests with our peers in real life that we've spoken to is an indispensable part of so many of our formative moments with cinema as an art as a medium for entertainment as a a machine for empathy uh, so we are in this for the love of the game. So the reason that we've waffled on so much, there's so much that we want to We're just sing bloody the love the movies. We, we bloody love the movies, and we bloody love most of these. I love one, two, three, four, five. I love six of these. I really like one, two, three, four, four further ones. I yeah, that's not going to go into. Yeah, there's there's ten of these movies that I at least like. <laughs> I at least like these movies. <laughs> so what this all boils down to is uh, what do we think is not what is the best what is our personal favourite pick? because yeah. the best it's ludicrous to say X is the best because it's shifting sands isn't it even if you try and set down objective rules as to what the best is it changes year yeah. to year changes day to day so we're going to talk about what our favourite movie is we picked our top five in ascending order. We also put the feelers out to you, listeners, uh, to nominate your top fives. We'll go through yours in just a moment. First of all, Andy Godion. Yeah. What is your p- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Hit me up. Uh, what is your pick for fifth favourite Amblin film of the 1980s? My fifth favourite is Steven Spielberg's adaptation of J.D. Ballard's novel... Empire of the Sun. Wonderful. Yeah. Great film. Anything you want to go into that you haven't covered already in previous I, 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 I don't think you really want to like hear me sponge more to check back the episode, but yeah. I just think it's a it's a very it's quite it's a faithful adaptation. It's one of the ones that like in the grand scheme of Spielberg, I think it's one of his more underrated efforts. Um and shows the kind of strengths of as a director and particularly the majority of a director that you more fully formed yeah. into in the 90s and uh, I do think it doesn't quite get as due as to how much of that no. is there in Empire of the Sun so Empire of the Sun I, I, I was very much taken with mm-hmm. how much I liked Empire of the Sun he certainly is the most successful of his serious quote-unquote excursions <laughs> the, as I coined it in the last episode the growing pains the growing pains there's the middle entry and the best entry. <laughs> uh, what was your number five, Joshua? Um, my number five is a film that is a staple sick day viewing for me. And it's a film that I, um, last time I watched it was was on a sick day. And I thought, this is fun, albeit insubstantial. Um, not something that I would say is a, is, a, is, a, is a capital G good film, you know, let alone great. Watching it again for the podcast, I thought, you know what? It takes a real deft hand to create something that is this, this sort of, um, that has this level of inspired, sustained mania. And it's something that you don't really see on this level. It's part of a, a teeny tiny genre that I yes. wish was bigger. 
Uh, and that is, of course, um, Joe Dante's 1987 shrinking classic, Inner Space. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it's no great work I knew of this art. was going to be in the top of five somewhere. It, yeah. <laughs> I think, I feel like our top four are going to be the same, maybe in a different order. But number five is, is the wild card. Uh, yeah, Inner Space is, it, it's just, it, I just wish there were more films that embraced their inherent silliness to this level. Um, it's just, it's just so much fun. And talking with Martin on the episode and you yeah. about it, I just, I wanted to watch it again straight away afterwards. And I watched it that morning as well. <laughs> so it, it, it's just so, even at two hours, it doesn't have to stay as welcome somehow. It doesn't leave you feeling, you know, like you're in a sugar coma. It is just, it's real, real good fun on a level that, um, God, I just wish, and, and again, this is why I love Out on the Wasp so much. I think that's quite close to, the spirit of the spirit of this, but Inner Space is just pretty much everything I want in a big daft blockbuster. <laughs> so that's my number five. Nice, nice. We'll get on Arrow video again to... Oh, I really, really think, because it's so close to the 35th anniversary of that goddamn thing, you know? Next year, it's Arrow. <laughs> with Andy and I can do the work. <laughs> Joe Dante liked a rambling tweet once he did <laughs> we'll take that to the grave <laughs> what's your number four my number four is a film we have mentioned a lot so far in this episode so i won't spend too much on it but it's just uh as we say it's kind of a miraculous exists anyway it features a perfect performance in its lead and it is robert zemeckis's who framed roger rabbit uh like, yeah and we've said a lot about it and lot. i just think it's yeah, yeah. It, it is one of those ones where like you say coming back to it as an adult yeah. reveals so many more levels to it than um, you appreciated when you watched it as a kid for the funny look, funny cartoons and seeing all your characters together and yeah. seeing space. It's, yeah, it, it, it's one that stands the test of time yeah. um, amongst this catalogue of a lot of films that do do yeah. Yeah, very yeah. well against the test of time, but it is one that has really come come through strong yeah <laughs> um, it's also my number four yeah, yeah. So I think so much of what makes these films what makes what makes the creme de la creme of 80s Amblin great is that they pull off the impossible and I think this pulls off the impossible in a more ostentatious and obvious way than any other it's, it's I mean the fact that there are three films that we like more than this is a testament to how great Amblin was yeah. at its prime it's, it's a great movie yeah I have a funny feeling that our top three are just slightly shifted. I feel shifted. like <laughs> very similar. So at number three, do we want to say this? Should oh, we? Well, it might not be the same. I think it is the same. Should point. we count ourselves down? Okay. Three. Wait, th- three, two, one, name? Or? Three, two, one, name. Okay. So. okay. Three, two, one, gremlins. gremlins. Yeah, baby! <laughs> illogical, logical, I do. No. Illogical. Oh, illogical, logical. <laughs> I might be it. Fantastic, fantastic idea for a fantastic world. Fantastic third entry for a fantastic world. Some favourite quote guy. Yeah. And it is. I mean, we, 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 uh, that was um, one of our earliest episodes, but it's, it, it's one uh, that I look back on with great fondness. It's yeah. great chatting to Daisy about this. And listeners, I recommend just giving it a little listen yourself. But it is, I mean, what, what are we doing? It's just like... It's taken a torch to Capra's Americana, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a, a perfect... It's coming to December, baby. Watch it there. again very soon. <laughs> Hopefully the Prince Charles Cinema will have a new screening of it. Hopefully Zach's back. <laughs> Zach's back, baby. But no, I, I know... Um, I'm, I'm excited to watch the sequel again. Mm-hmm. But this has always been the one that has... Dante's best, right? Gunman's. Gremlins. Yeah, the first... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... Uh, the, the, uh, I haven't I know seen Matinee yet, A lot so of folks like New Batch more. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that jury's out, and I've not seen it for a long time, but I just I don't think that it New could Batch be is as great. good as this. Yeah, More but, on that in a few episodes time, but... Grimace is kind of a perfect example yeah, of what it is. It really is. Perfect blend of horror comedy and festive. <laughs> uh, festive cold tides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it walks such a deft balance that there's so many trying to emulate. And I, I do feel like it is the perfect encapsulation of what Dante can do. It could yeah. smuggle this real violently anarchic subversion into what looks like a cuddly family mm-hmm. film. Like the, the poster alone... And Gizmo's great. Conveys, Gizmo's great. <laughs> the animatronics. <Puppets> great. <laughs> it's so easy to overlook what an incredible achievement it is technically as well. Mm-hmm. Be, beyond a script and performance and directing level, the the, the, the physical in-camera effects are just remarkable. Yeah. yeah. I am worried for the Gremlins afterlife that we're going to get at some, <laughs> at some point or another. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Now one and two. Mm. Ah, this. I mean, imagine we've got the same two films but reversed. Okay. <laughs> so, how do you want to do this then? So I think I should say I'm going to say my number two is Back to the Future. More on that <laughs> because let's face it, listener. You know, I know. Back to the Future is Joshua Glenn's number one pick here. So my you number say what two. your number two is. Which is my number one. <laughs> <laughs> my number two, which is Anna's number one, is... Uh, uh, I mean, it's, I wasn't going to Spielberg's first masterpiece. It's not even his first masterpiece, is no. it? Maybe his third? <laughs> <laughs> it's his third. It's his, it's his fourth master. Oh, fourth! Because Indiana Jones is the middle, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, his fourth Jaws master. Close Encounters. Jesus Christ. Ray's lost art then, E.T. Yeah. Uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, Andy, take the reins, man. Yes, yes. I mean, I, this is... It forms a logo. It has one of John Williams's most uh, iconic scores and most kind of... It's the film that when you come to think of Amblin and what, what everyone kind of, kind of thinks of Amblin, as we've spoken to a lot to a lot of the people on this podcast, like it's one that typifies yeah. the idea. And for very good reasons, because it lays it down so incredibly well and yeah. so kind of on the surface of it, so effort effortlessly when we're in this kind of age of uh blockbusters that kind of use the kind of techniques that similar techniques to what a lot of these films lay down from kind of um having uh stories of fantastical elements uh invading on uh more relatable ground yeah. and then taking off on an adventure that they've all gone so much bigger and what have you for from the very advent of visual effects just getting better and better but like this it remains the sort of film where there are many imitators but never never anything that's come close to kind of capturing that what is i'm I'm kind of looking at the flowers that you've got on the (laughs) table here and they're very similar to the arrangement in et yeah but there's just something very very innocent about it in a time um where i think particularly you could you could try and think more cynically about E.T. now, but like whenever you actually go back and watch yeah. it again, it just immediately breaks down those walls. And yeah. you're just reminded and transported to that time when you were first seeing it and were kind of initially a little, maybe a little scared, a little trepidatious yeah. around it, but like instantly get rolled up. Because the film itself follows that same evolution of being trepidatious and scared and a little uneasy and then rolling you into this kind of, comfort blanket before delivering emotional wallop followed by incredibly exuberant joy that then gets again kind of 
uh, dissipated by reality coming coming yeah. back in. And it teaches like even just that whole narrative ride teaches you so much about kind of how you experience life, like how high yeah. the highs are, but yeah. how quickly the lows can come following the highs, following yeah. the highs as well, and and that is distilled in a kind of like perfect yeah. to our blockbuster package that remains like a gold standard for this kind of film and for any kind of Hollywood yeah. filmmaking, really. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Beautifully put. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know we, we spoke about it at the time, but it is the idea that the film is is giving Elliot the emotional tools to yeah. deal with the trauma that he's had with his family breaking up. And I think the film also gives a view of that. I mentioned before that obviously it's my biggest cry. The best films that get you on the emotion, that work on an emotional level, help bring to the four emotions that in everyday life you might struggle to articulate or or, or even feel, you know? It, it's sometimes difficult. Sometimes you react to a stimulus in a way that is illogical or doesn't give you the... It's the illogical the catharsis. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I agree. And it is, it is so close with these two. It's yeah. so, so close. Yeah. It is, um... So my number two, but your number one <laughs> is, of course... What, what can I say at this point, man? It's... <laughs> It's been my favourite film since I was about 10. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I yeah. It, what I think is remarkable about this film is that its flaws are there for the world to see. It wear, almost wears its flaws on its sleeve. It has questionable, albeit certainly to our eyes, to be generous to it, unintentional, um, iffy racial politics. Its sexual politics are a little bit questionable as well. The time travel that forms the basis of the film makes absolutely no sense. It ends on a note of arguable Reaganism, although we have tried our best to dissuade viewers of that notion. We think it's more subversive than it is given credit for. No matter what part two might make you say. But Back to the Future, to me, is a testament to the idea that if, if the important things are working then the things that don't work about it almost don't matter. And I would say, even though it's a glaringly imperfect film, to me, it is a perfect film. And it, 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 it's like, it's the fun... And we spoke about it in the episode. This film, you know, to use the word again, and I hate to repeat myself. Actually, I quite like repeating yeah. myself. Let's just going to test. But again, much like Roger Rabbit, much like pretty much any of Zemeckis' early successes, it's an impossible film. It should not exist... Certainly not in the way it does. The production history is fraught, um, lock, locking down its protagonist who shoulders so much of the sort of the tonal demands was almost not the case. They 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 had to reshoot the movie after how long was it now? Was it two weeks of shooting? Yeah, when they had to yeah it was bring good him two in weeks. Again? what this film has going for it is is uh, a script that is sort of made airtight by years of of rewrites and rethinking and and coincidences and just happenstances that sort of forced this sedimentary rock level of of dense perfection and i just get i get high watching this movie i get high <laughs> off the fumes of this movie just doing making all the right narrative visual performance choices um 
as soon as it opens, you are fed so much information, almost by osmosis. You don't realise that what you're being given is exposition. But when these things start to pay off, you realise just how much the film has done a, an amazing job of reeling you in emotionally, uh, intellectually. It's, it's hooked your curiosity. It is... It, I'm, I struggle to discuss the film in objective terms because I'm so emotionally invested in it. But it is... It, it, it does all the work. It does all the work in a way that not many things... And I, again, I don't want to sound like an old father, but not many things these days have the patience to put the work in. Like this film puts the work in. Um, it's my favourite film. I love it so much. And... It is an endlessly fun well to return to. Michael J. Fox. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are they so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. It's back to the future, man. Back to the future. It's it's a glorious, glorious... You you know. (laughs) You, You all know. You, and, yeah. and, and you know if the listener votership is anything to go by they do <laughs> they, they do. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to count down the top five Andrew I would I would like like I, I don't think it would be too much of a surprise to say that like this top five does not differ that much from no. our individual top fives no beyond number five <laughs> <laughs> like I had a different film for my number five and Josh had a different film for his number five you dear listeners in our grand in our grand listener vote, also have a different number five. So, coming in at the listener's number five, with a total of 13 votes, beating out number six by two votes, it was quite close to for the fifth position. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five is Don Bluth's The Lamb Before Time, Ooh-hoo. which warms me cockles to see it play so well. <laughs> just, just, just to give a, a, an example of how um, the fifth place choice is oh, yeah, fifth place. such a wild free really for all. What was the sixth choice for the listeners? The sixth choice was The Goonies yeah. with 11 It's votes. mad. And then beyond that was Back to the Future. Somehow the money pit rose to number eight. Back to the Future Part 2, we should say. Sorry. <laughs> part two. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> But I think there are four... They've got a good handful there, yeah. <laughs> there are obviously four entrenched masterpieces, and then beyond yeah. that, it's anyone's game. Yeah. <laughs> so, at number four, with 17 votes, just just pipping so pulling away. before time, yeah. pulling away, is Joe Dante's Gremlins. Woo! <laughs> For more on that, press the back 30 seconds button on your iPhone <laughs> about seven times. And then, really jumping away from... Those votes with a total of 30 was at number three, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> and that golf kind of continues over that, again, three and two did swap around quite a bit. Over yeah, the, yeah, they did. Yeah, it votes. was pretty touch and go for a while, but. Uh... Uh, with a grand total of 36 votes in the end was Spielberg's classic, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Spielberg's classic, Andrew Gordion's favourite. And Andrew Gordion's favourite. So, uh, coming in at number one uh, is Joshua Glenn's favourite. And also with a whopping uh, total of 50 votes. Really, like, throughout this whole thing, it was pretty much ahead of the whole pack. I don't think there was ever a time when it wasn't no. number Because <laughs> some folks, oh, oh, like, most people gave us a top five. Some folks only volunteered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, in some way... It might be unfair. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. I'm sure you all agree and won't have any qualms about the fact 
like the listener, the rambling listener, number one film of the eighties for Amelin Entertainment is, of course, Robert Zemeckis's Back to the Future. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. 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 Yeah. No arguments here. and film. Crackin' film that. If you've never seen it, what the fuck are you doing? And again, thank you so much to everyone who voted in this in this poll. And you know, just to get a little bit second for a second, we've had. Oh no! It's my birthday. We've been doing this for well. We, we first uh, coined this, but it's getting so indulgent. No, whatever. We coined this podcast just over a year I, ago. I, mean, I really won't worry about the indulgent element <laughs> at, at this point. Two and a half hours. We'll be, in. We'll be, we'll be finishing soon. We promise. We, we started this podcast uh, just over a year ago, and we've had such a lovely um, response from people. It's a, a, a wonderful podcast network we found uh, on Twitter and and beyond, mm-hmm. um, and we're just so grateful for all the engagement we've had, all the support, the wonderful guests that have graced our aural uh, uh, space <laughs> thus far. Um, so just thank you to everyone who's been a part of Rambling, and uh, we love doing it, and we're yeah. so happy that you guys have been uh, along with us for the journey. And, and uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely echo that. It's been an absolute joy. I mean, we I think we would still be doing this if only like 10 people were listening. Which but... might be the case for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's it, it's 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 genuinely very, like, I love doing it. And I, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I it, it does, it does help that people listen. It's nice. But it's like, at the same time, it, this is very much born out of love and a yeah. desire to kind of do a project like this. And it's yeah. kept... It's kept us both, I think, in a in a very good, healthy mindset. To, like, <laughs> yeah. have something to it's carried us through some of like the this. darker aspects of lockdowns. Yeah. Certainly, <laughs> the darker lockdowns, and uh, and and it, it's it, been an absolute balm. <laughs> and it has to be said that any any dislike we pour upon films, we try to not do so um, with malice. We try to yeah, be yeah, as yeah. <laughs> you know, we try we try to be as not gonna like everything. <laughs> it's impossible to like everything. Jeez, and if you did, then you know, give yourself a little check. I don't know. <laughs> that sucks though. But um, I think this brings up to uh, our close on the 1980s. I, I kind of feel like as this, as I'm sure if you stare down at the runtime at this episode right now, as it did, as it shows. <laughs> We're finding it very hard to let go of the eighties because it is such a significant part yeah, of yeah. Amblin, and so many of the like the stone cold hard classics are from the eighties. But don't you worry, dear listener, there are many to come in the nineties and beyond. Um, and the nineties is when Andy and I were born, so we exactly. have a lot so of first hand <laughs> primary resources to plunder. <laughs> Not quite yet, but like, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, give it two Amblin years' time. Yeah. This is what, Free half a year me. and a half time? <laughs> but, of course, in our next episode, we will be setting forth into the 90s. We'll be don- donning our denim shirts and our drainpipe jeans to step into the first Amblin entry. And that is 1990s Joe versus the Volcano. Directed by John Patrick Shanley and starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. If you fancy watching the film ahead of the episode and don't happen to have it on disc, 
that is available to buy or rent digitally on Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, and Microsoft Store. Oh, baby. And if you've got any thoughts on the film, uh, then please do tweet them at us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. We'll get into this next episode with uh, with uh, a rather exciting guest we should yes. tease as well. Me, 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 me. <laughs> if that falls through, then take this out, obviously. But... <laughs> of course. <laughs> but listen, man, um, this has been an absolute joy. The last yes. year has been great. Obviously, Thank you for indulging us. Oh, listener. my God, yeah. Uh, we hope you made it all the way through. And I, frankly, if you didn't, I don't care. <laughs> you can always give this a listen again and again and again. Exactly. Maybe if we listen to it, it's intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You might have to get your scissors out and really cut, cut, cut. Uh, really hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and that you have also enjoyed the journey so far to echo Josh's thoughts. It's, yeah. it's, uh, fan- it's been fantastic to do this. And uh, it's glad to, I'm, I'm so happy that so many people have, uh, responded to it as well and we look forward to diving into e- the even weirder forest <laughs> of movies that is Amblin in the 90s and we hope that you continue to join us on that journey as well for now we hope you all take care look after one another we love you very much I've been Andy Godian I have been and will continue to be Joshua Glenn and together we are Ramblin and Amblin podcast until next time take care goodbye Leave us alone!